This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother Dagan Mithrandir Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Old gray beard. Yes. Look at that. Say that? Yes. Yeah. Gibbets and crows. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wait to say that for a while, haven't you? <laughs> Had to get that out. Yeah. So what's what's going on? How's life? Everything's okay. Yeah, yeah, just chilling. Here it is on a Friday. Got the movie playing silently to my right. Oh, really? That's that. nice. Let's hope That's we finish nice. before the movie finishes, because when the movie finishes, then we the audio goes back on like it did. Oh, last okay. So we yeah, well, to... it won't be done for seven hours, so don't worry. About it. <laughs> That's true. Man, That's when I put this true. thing on, when you told me the runtime was, I was like, "Oh my god!" I know. I, I, I had to just sit down. And be, I literally, I sat down with Micah at five, a little after five. Okay. And I'm like, "We won't be done with this until after 10. And then we we got through <laughs> the first disc, and then we ate dinner, and then we got through it. You know, ten ten thirty or ten forty five. So it's an all night affair. That was Holy your whole evening. Shit. We got to. But it's really that. good. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. But how's How are life you doing? over there? And oh, I'm, I mean, I'm good. I'm yeah. fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. You'll notice that I, so I finally had the blinds guy come over today. Yeah. Promising for a long time yeah. that I was going to get this done. Okay. And uh, so he put up the the blinds, like the accordion blinds, which I have all over my house, but he put up the ones that I have in my bedroom, which are like just totally blackout. And I'm, I'm ecstatic about it. That's nice. So, Good blinds. Just, Tough. Yeah. Pricey blinds. Definitely, dude. Pricey. I paid a... Uh, I got six accordion blinds because he replaced. I have four windows in my living room, and we also put the blackout ones on those just because the glare is so bad on the TV sometimes. And we would like to have the option to not, you know, like when there's a glare on your TV and then you can't stop staring at what's in the glare. Oh, so you actually have maddening. a good picture, but then like you just keep. And there's, I always see the house like behind us, you know. So, <laughs> so that really bothers me. So, dude, that was all his labor and and the blinds, eight hundred and fifty bucks. So. <sighs> But it had to be done. Had to be done. You got to do it. It's a must. I looked up how much these things actually cost. He actually gave me a pretty nice deal. I actually okay. appreciated it. But he's a friend of Uncle Mike's, actually. Oh, nice. Everybody's a friend of Uncle Mike's. I know. He's like the mayor. He's been down here only for, what, five years? He's already like the mayor of, That's uh, so cr- of Chesterfield County. But, so Uncle Mike. You but know, um, it's how he rolls. Everything, everything's good, dude. Everything's fine. Good. Got a lot of games to play, a lot of things to do this summer, which is catching up on spoiler cast and review discussions. So I'm trying to. I got to replay Resident Evil at some point. We're going to do one on Returnal and okay. all the rest. So there's just there's just, you know, Ratchet and a bunch of other things. So just a lot of games to play. Scarlet yeah. Nexus, of course, another one. So, um, yeah, I'm a, just I got to really sit in and start playing. Yeah. And oh, it'll be fun. That sounds fun. It is nice. It's yeah, nice, but it's fun. But it's it's not as stressful as it used to be at IGN or even at kind of funny in the sense that we had we used to get games early. And so that would compel you to hit the embargo and. I fucking hated that shit. Like, I, it's really nice that I just that I just buy video games with everyone else now. I don't deal with PR at all. There you go. And I buy them when everyone else gets them, and then we kind of enjoy them at the same pace. 
So it's a level playing field. And we just grow and grow and grow no matter that what. So I knew that my access had nothing to do with why people enjoyed the content. And there you we were go. able to make that choice. The, the proof's in the pudding. Indeed it is. I like it. I like you. I like your strats. I like your strats, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate that. Now, Dagan, it's time to get into the topic in, earn, in mm. earnest, the Return of the King. The third film, 2003, four and a half hours long, the extended edition. I watched it in Ultra 4K on my PlayStation 5. Nice. And I got to say, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk to you about this. I'm excited for multiple reasons. Number one, it's going to be fun to go through everything in the movie. There's a lot. And then it's also going to be fun to talk about because I don't really have any insight or I, I don't because I barely remember anything about what wasn't in this movie because I know that there's a lot of or a few things in particular that's not covered in the movie properly, yeah. I think, according to a lot of people. And then also I want to talk about and I know, you know, we got a lot of messages about how Tolkien was anti-allegory. And yet, I want to talk about the possible allegories in the, in the film as well, because it's fun. And that's what art is all about. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And I also don't really believe him. I was reading some of this stuff. I'm like, I don't know if I really believe you. He's a little, he really right. you know, he seems a little evasive when he yeah. talks about that. So we got to get into that. Yeah, well, it's we'll fascinating. That. It is. But let's just start. 40,000 feet. What did you think of the film Return of the King? You know what, dude? I forgot. I knew I really enjoyed this movie, the entire trilogy, obviously. This is the last one we're talking about. And I enjoyed the whole kit and caboodle, but I forgot how good this movie was. And I don't remember the last time I've seen the extended edition being, what, 44 hours and 23 minutes and change or whatever. But I have to say, going through it now again and it being fresh in my mind, I can't think of a better example of a successfully done film of this length. I mean, for me, I really found it really to be even more enjoyable than I initially remembered. Emotional, great characters, great acting, great action. I found it to be beautiful in the visuals and every, pretty much every sense of the word. Very few things that I felt were egregious in any way. And for a four-hour-plus film, really masterful pacing, I found. You know, I found it really to be engaging and entertaining from the first minutes all the way through to, you know, those last minutes inside that fourth hour. I really was engrossed and I was pleasantly surprised. And I think it makes the two towers pale in comparison. And I didn't remember that. I didn't remember feeling that way about this movie, but it's really, I think it's a really, really strong undertaking. I think when you have such a brilliant book, and, you know, sort of the epic ending of one of the epic trilogies of all time. Like, it's a pretty hard act to follow the novel. And, man, I, I just really, really enjoyed it. Like, I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about it right now, that Kyle, that, like, I feel like I could go in and do it again. And that takes stamina. This is a yeah, long movie. Well, you're a man known for his stamina. <laughs> now, I, I got to say, I agree with you. I, I don't. So I was trying to think about this and i don't know for sure i could have maybe only seen return of the king once which would be in the theater so okay. if that's true and i think it is and it's kind of you know it's getting hard to remember like it is it really is i don't know why it's, it's 2003 i almost i almost took it for granted at some point where it's like oh i remember everything you know i don't remember fucking anything <laughs> so to that if that's true 2003 the end of 2003 so it's been a while it's been what 18 years and I remembered liking the two towers more. And I remembered when I read the trilogy when I was young in high school, I, or even whenever it was, I think it was in high school. 
which we discussed in a previous episode that I remember that being my favorite book as well. So I was a little bit surprised when the film came around and I was like, wow, this is kind of, in my opinion, a step, a really a, a pretty marked step down from fellowship. And what was nice was I agree. I think return of the King is the, maybe the best of the three. And I agree. I do like the pacing. I know we'll, we'll talk about the endings and, and all that and the, and <laughs> a lot of the endings. Frodo and Bill, you know, Frodo and Sam stuff. But I do like that it takes its time to in the extended edition to kind of tend to many things. And I know that purists, Tolkien purists have a problem with the way some of the stuff was dealt with. And I think some of it will come through with in our discussions with about Saruman sure, and some of the ways, definitely. you know, about Sam and Frodo's relationship, I think, is another thing. Even the, the, the fate of the ring uh, itself and how that happens. But I, from a, what I will just consider myself a layman, because I'm not a Tolkien. I li- I love Tolkien, but it's not like I'm like reading his books and I've never read any of the expen- you know, the the Simmerillion or any of that other sure. stuff. Sure. So I really have no. I, I was reading the w- Lord of the Rings Wikipedia last night, like a nerd, specifically because I was interested in orc culture and we'll, we'll it's talk good about that stuff. In a little while. Yeah, you can and learn. So, you can you can learn, and I always loved. I think it was something awful. The website that used to put up like here's a wikipedia article for you know sharon the moon of pluto and it's two thousand words whatever and it's like here is the wikipedia article for endor and it's like 50 50 000 words. <laughs> thesis yeah, yeah like it's so funny it's so good like and they would take the real things and like how like little the wikipedia was and then like the fake shit <laughs> you know it'd be like ai and then it'd be like terminator 2 <laughs> and like put put in isn't that crazy to think like there's an brilliant. expert for out there for every single thing even a fictional planet in a fictional science fiction series you know what i mean like there's somebody who's really enthusiastic about something you know nothing is uncovered there's somebody out there for everything that's weird so it is weird and it's 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 awesome that's what that's what my favorite part about podcasts is just like when we talk about this mathematician about geometry today i'm like okay so (laughs) i i do dig that they explore they take their time it seems excessive and gratuitous, and yet you can't deny the results, both at the box office. This is an Oscar-nominated fest of a movie. Yes, and is. and I also just dig the performances. So I, I found the entire thing very charming. And I'll also say this. A lot of people were kind of talking about how I, I took umbrage with the the tech and kind of the way a lot of the CG holds up from Two Towers. But I feel like it's much less egregious in this movie, yes. particularly because I don't think that they put themselves in positions often to have like the, tr- the you know, the, the hobbits with the tree shit where it's like it looks like Jerry and Elaine in a car in Seinfeld where it's like so fake. You know what I'm <laughs> talking about? That's a great example. It looks ridiculous, <laughs> like where there's no sh- the shadows are wrong and everything. So, right. So I dig that they kind of got away from that. And yet I also kind of got sucked into some of what I was realizing having watched the movies in such quick succession all the tricks that they do to make sure that the the shots come off right tons of close-ups lots of shot changing and really obscure and weird shots stunt doubles that are a little there's a scene where I think uh, it's actually fucking hysterical there's a scene where Gandalf picks up Merry and puts him on the horse yeah with sure him. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and it's hysterical if yeah. you go watch it it's like him picking up a little person or a stunt double i guess <laughs> you know like whatever it is it's just awesome <laughs> and 
So there's, but if you can get over, see, that's the thing that's so surprising to me about watching these in succession, Dagan, is for all of the budget and yeah. for how well the acting is and for how good it looks, they're still, it's still a relic of its age. And you almost wish, God, I can't believe I'm even saying this, that this would get a George Lucas-like special edition where they can really go in and fix that. And I was often one, I was kind of stuck wondering, like, why don't they or can't they do that? What's... Yeah. What is it about a film that's, I guess like it's, it's, it's this stuck in an amber kind of thing, but what's stopping you from making it better going back over and over again, even doing it. And would that be like sacrilegious to people? I think it would be, but I just couldn't help but think of like all the things they could have probably fixed today. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I think sacrilege is the right word too because and not just for the viewers i think maybe considered maybe sacrilegious or sacred ground for the filmmakers as well you know or just film in general where you just like don't go back and redo citizen kane type of thing you know even though you could do it better now type of thing but being so special effects heavy specifically i understand what you're saying you know it's just uh, it's being as you know it's age nearly 20 years old you have something that's just really beholden to its time. And again, we talk about the rapid evolution of visual technology and visual effects and how spoiled we are and how spoiled our eyes are and how perceptive we are because of that. Like the average viewer really has a great eye for it now with the technology, you know, with everything we're beholden to in TV and film. So, but it is an interesting question. And, you know, also like very ambitious. Like this movie is very ambitious. It doesn't stray away from trying to show things in a smaller way if it needs to be grand. You know, when they're fighting those, you know, um, men from the East on those all offense or whatever, like, you know, that's an epic set piece battle. They're not trying to shy away or just show medium shots or whatever there. They're going all in. So by doing that, you take a risk. And by, you know, the Weta, the Wettas of the world and all that kind of stuff, like these visual effects houses, multi-million dollar companies advertising, all that, like, you're kind of putting yourself on the line, you know, when you do something like that, because you know, it's going to be sort of put under the microscope, just another decade, you know, ahead of it, you know, type of thing. So even the Weta Digitals and stuff, they're not Pixar's and everything. They're not immune to that. And it's an inter- it's such an interesting part of the conversation. But I agree with you. It's much less egregious than even the Two Towers. And then especially odd when you think about that these films are all made generally at the same time. Right. Right. So. That's that I can't thing. get away from. That I can't get away from, which is them having filmed it all at once, which I sure. still love. I love that idea. I think it's awesome. It's but a great idea. Sticks them in place, like we were saying, I think, during the Two Towers conversation where they're kind of dedicated to these things. And yet, and this, I, was, I remarked this to Micah because I was criticizing some things that then I'm like, who, I said, who the fuck am I? Because we were talking about with the elephant creatures, I think there's a, a scene with I don't know who it was. I guess it's Legolas or whatever, taking down one of them. And it was just like this 15 second sequence. Yes. And I was like, that was literally someone's 18 months of their life. Absolutely. You know, and I was, that's like, like they just stared at this thing over and over and over again. And then I'm sitting, it happens and it's cool. And everyone thinks it's great. And then I'm sitting here, you know, it's 18 years later being like, eh. Can you imagine? Yeah. I know. <laughs> pass after pass, render right. after render, daily after daily, crit after crit. But you know what? I'm impressed because most people don't think like that, that aren't involved in animation or visual effects or that sort of, you know, those really like essential jobs in feature film that are very, very time consuming, you know? 
and really could, yeah, exactly. Like you're living, there's a, there's a person or people, a team living inside of that minute. So like you said, like a year and a half, you know, and just so Legolas could have his shadow of the Colossus Yeah, just his moment, moment, you know? So it can be like thrown away by me in a podcast. You know? so. <laughs> They're all right though. They make good money, those guys and girls. Yeah. They certainly do. They all right. Serve. So, Dave, this is a complicated thing to talk about. Okay. This this movie. I think it's four and a half, you know, like we said, four and a half hours long, tons of topics. Biggie. Got a lot of inquiries from the audience. Of course, you can support us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash last media. Get early ad free access and the ability to vote on topics and the ability to submit your inquiries. Inquiries. We appreciate all of that. Tons of really good stuff here that I want to get into. But before we get into any of that, I kind of want to start at the very beginning. Yeah. The opening scene with Smeagol is awesome. And I'm wondering what you make of that scene. And I, I love the iconography, doubling down on the iconography of the power of the ring by immediately showing you this horrifying event that took this this man into its grasp. And um, he's, there's this awesome quote when it's like, when we forget the taste of bread, the sound of trees. And he's talking about all the things that as time had went on from that moment of getting in the, the trance of the ring, nothing was good enough. Yes. And, and everything ended up revolving around it and never satiating it's it awesome. like a drug addiction. I think it's, it's super cool. So I'm just curious what you think about the way the movie starts. Cause I actually don't, I, I was, I, I actually did remember this as I recall, maybe it's a false memory, but remembering that the movie actually starts on a little bit of a, like a, a heady trip. Yeah. The Gollum orig origin story. You know, Akal, before right. I forget, and I meant to do this on the Two Towers podcast, I have my ring. Can you guys see oh. it? Now, this is Grandpa's horse head ring. Oh, of course. You know it very well. Yeah. Our Grandpa, Alessandro Rogero, wore this gold horse head ring up his ass. No, that's, that's for the Pulp <laughs> Fiction. He didn't wear it up his ass. It has a little diamond eye. I like to think it's real. And it's a little heirloom, a little keepsake. I have my, I think I could get it over this whole thing. Yeah, just barely. It's going to go up my nose for a second. There we go. There we go. I have it from my, our quest, our journey. But now it's going to be over the wire. Is that going to bother my you? One ring. Oh, is it over the wire? You didn't think this through. That's all right. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. I'm not going to leave it okay. the whole time. Okay. Don't tell them. Fair enough. I'm Fair not going to take it all the way to Mount Doom. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, but don't, we don't want to destroy it. No. Grandpa wouldn't, Grandpa wouldn't like that. My God, this is Sorry, a keepsake. Grandpa. So... Yeah, talk to me a little bit about the the origin story and how that kind of sets the cadence for the movie. Because I I I I don't know. I just was really quite drawn into it from from the beginning. I thought it was a really nice way to. I forgot. I, mean, I know about that's the too. story, but yeah, yeah, yeah no. On. I mean, I completely forgot about it. So it was a treat. Again, I haven't seen this movie in quite some time, and uh, I have to say, Smeagol, you know, proper Smeagol, OG Smeagol, might be scarier than Gollum. I think Definitely. he's he's Hearing pretty creepy. Talk. And how his voice hasn't changed really is, is that's dope. I mean, that's a, so you know, good. I don't know if that was in the book described that way or if that was a, a creative decision, but I like that decision that like it's it's a little un unnerving because you had assumed everything about him had changed. But really, yeah, his right, whole intonation true. and shit hadn't changed at all. It, it, it does make it creepy. You're right yeah. to have that touchstone back, like because the physical evolution or de-evolution, whatever you want to say, is is unnerving, you know, but. Yeah, I really enjoy having the Gollum backstory in there. I should know this already, but is he a hobbit? Is he not a hobbit? I don't know. Is he some sort of ancient type of hobbit before they evolved into hobbits proper? I don't know. You know, I'm not here to say, but 
Yeah, I love the little origin story. I love the fact that it seems like that character already has issues. You know, like there's obviously something going on there with the relationship with the characters. He's already a little underhanded. And it makes me realize like the ring in this sort of ghostly, mysterious way, like seems to find like the most corruptible, right? It seems to almost like, I don't know, it seems to almost like a parasite. Like it needs to find a home. It needs to find a host. And it's drawn to that type of character. And that type of character is drawn to it. So a really cool, mysterious thing going on. You you realize this has been going on for centuries. This ring, this ancient ring, this weapon changing hands. And just like you said, like almost like a drug, like having such an enormous power over somebody, having this thing, you know, basically being a reason for becoming a reason for living, like nothing else even matters to its dependent and that it has its hooks in Gollum so early and just, you know, what it's responsible for with his physical decay and his emotional decay and that he just can't bear existing without this thing. And I love going all the way back to seeing, like, we see its backstory with the original war and Elrond and Isildur and everything, but now we see it fall into Smeagol and Deagle's hands and sort of how it ended up, you know, then we could ascertain how it ended up, of course, with Bilbo and the Hobbit. Super cool. Uh, I just love the, there's some cool iconography, actually. I noticed in the beginning, too, that the, I don't know if this is maybe me reading into it too much, but the ring being found in the water is so cool, like how this ring just pops up and people see it and the fish takes him to it in this in this case and there's a draw to it but I, I there's this great shot of it once it's in i think on the ground and it's just totally clean the ring is just totally cleaned up and it, it, as if it was some mystical or sinister so cool. force around it and also we we had to send we had discussed from the very beginning in fellowship how the, the the vacillating size of the ring i think is really creepy too and they do that again in this movie which up to the very end when they destroy it, which I love too, because obviously it was worn by various various people that wouldn't have had the same ring size. So, sure, I sure. I like I just like the cadence. It's it's it starts out very dark. It almost feels like if you were, and I don't know where the 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 way this lines up in the books, but if you were to just write this as th- a one long story split into three parts, you would have almost wanted that to be the end of the second movie. But I like the, that it that it like where it's it gives you a little, it's it's almost like a Luke Skywalker on the cliff kind of situation. But I dig it, and it gives it gives us insight into Smeagol. And hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And actually, I wanted to bring in this inquiry from Andy Genereau. Yo, Andy. French much? He wrote it and said, hello, Super Moriarty bros. So when is uh, Gollum and Smeagol going to get his due? Without him, Frodo walks right past Sam while wearing the ring and all hope is lost. It was Gollum's actions that led to the destruction of the ring. Frodo ultimately succumbed to the ring's power and he had to have his finger bitten off to relinquish it. I have said my piece. What say you? So 
I wanted to bring that up. I mean, we might as well talk about him immediately, even though it snaps to the end. Sure. And and obviously Gollum plays a, a big part in this film as well in the, just the journey through Mordor. But does he get his due? I, 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 almost, I almost feel like Sam was right about him the entire time. But it almost, you know what it feels like? I don't, I'm not trying to get like too religious or anything, but the idea that Jesus had to have been killed in order to fulfill the prophecy, mm, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a very similar thing where it's like, well, I don't know what would what needed to have happened to have gotten us into the sequence of events in which the ring falls. But the only thing I could think of was like Frodo, man, like you were just right there and you lost a finger really for no reason. And you have to look at that for the rest of your life and be like, oh. I could have just dropped this motherfucker right in the, in the, in the lava <laughs> and I'd still have my finger and nothing else would have been different. But nonetheless, do you feel like he gets his due? I mean, how do you feel about that character? I I was really drawn to the fact, I guess, because I didn't remember that he really is. He is the antagonist. Like he is one of the antagonists. And it, he doesn't t- he he takes a heel turn. It's not it's not what you probably would have expected. You expected some sort of redemptive arc, but it never actually happens. Yeah, true. Right? So very true. That's a great point about the redemptive arc. You're almost even though Gollum's sort of an a-hole. You are rooting for him. You're you're kind of rooting for him to straighten it out. You know he's being tortured by this little tiny trinket, you know, and it's so tragic. Well, let's work backwards, right? We okay. know Sam and Frodo needed a guide, right? That was the practicality of the situation. They needed someone who was familiar with the lands of Mordor because he had been a prisoner there. He had slunk around there. But he, he knew the place. And that's the way he operates too. Like he always knows the secret passages and the secret ways and everything staying out of harm's way and, you know, being a little creep. So they really needed him as a guide, right? I love his ending. I love the irony of the ending that he gets what he wants as he's dying. I mean, that's the utter, when you're writing a story, I mean, what could be more utterly tragic? It's like he gets the ring, he's smiling in those last moments as he's dissolving in the lava. You know, super cool payoff, I think. But also with Gollum, I realized too, like, I guess more so in The Two Towers, it was interesting to see that he was, his dark side and his good side were struggling like there was some sort of um some sort of struggle going on in his psyche a bipolar sort of thing where and it, you know it compelled the audience i think at least for me like to feel sympathy for him a little bit because you knew he was being corrupted by this thing that he couldn't live without this drug this trinket this 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 enormous power that could give him an easier life let's say and you know his whatever inherent goodness you know, that he, that he had pre-corrupt, you know, during the Smeagol era, let's say. Then in the second movie, what I love seeing is that he's already pretty far gone. Like he's already committed to betraying Sam and Frodo and he just wants the ring by any means necessary. And he's playing the game and you see the cogs going on. You see the scheming, you know, you see his insidious nature where it's not just you know, the physicality of slinking in the shadows and dropping into the swamp and swimming It's and the claws and all that kind of shit. It's like also like his cunning, you know, that he's pitting Sam against Frodo and he knows exactly the two, you know, he knows the two types. He knows that Frodo is under a very similar thrall with the ring so he could play Frodo against Sam, who he knows is going to be hard to beat because Sam is so true of heart. You know, you have the golems and let's say the Boromirs and everything. I'm not pitting, I'm not putting those two characters together, but you have the corruptible versus the Galadriels and the Faramirs and the Sams, which are like, you know, they're beyond the corruption of the ring just because of the fabric of who those characters are. 
So, and I love Gollum being the, you know, the one end of the spe- of the spectrum for that. And I just love the animators slash Andy Circus, the direction, Peter Jackson, everybody involved in like Gollum's performance in this movie, I think really holds up, you know, not just the the CGI modeling and the translucent skin and all the visual stuff, but just the acting choices, you know, the very subtle eye darts and the, and the you know, the sly Mel, smile. Mel Gibson and tr- eye darts? <laughs> the Mel Gibson. <laughs> Why is there not a meme of that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, not to go off on a tangent, but there really should be a meme of that. Sorry so to interrupt you. Whoever's yeah. whoever's listening out there, we need the Mel Gibson eye dart meme, but I'm trying to think of the best movie. that I guess it would be Braveheart, right? Well, I think Signs was a good one for the eye dart, I Signs think. Signs was a great one for that. Yeah. And The Patriot. Yeah, The Patriot, of course. So either yeah. of those three movies ex- totally I don't know how we got... I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I totally No, that's okay. But I'm just saying, like, the performances and just the, the subtlety... You know, that was really showed a lot of discipline. I love I love a subtle acting performance. That's probably the animator in me. But you know, just the sly smile and the eye dart and and trying to cover up that he's happy that he's sending him into Shelob's lair and stuff like that. Like, you know, for me, like I was just really dishing on Gollum's performance in this and really satisfied to see that it holds up. You know, that sort of thing. I think animation specifically, if you put the visual components aside, just the performances and the acting. That's something so nice about animation because that that that's something that holds up better through the years and through the eras than whatever visual technology the performance is you know tied to or beholden to. Well, it's funny you say that because I know a lot of people think that, and we'll talk about Sam and Frodo themselves, but that that whole arc is more it's too long and that they could have cut that a lot out and and all of that. And I at the same time, I feel like. And I don't know, I guess you maybe I'm just not remembering it right, but I just feel like Gollum is just in in this less. It just feels like he's less upfront. There just seems to be much more going on. So we're not so focused on his foibles sure. as a character, but also as maybe the way he doesn't hold up as well. Like Mordor is darker. They're in caves and there's no light sources and it's easier to get that CG in. And so he fits a little bit more broadly into what's going on in this world and so there's a lot to to that that I that because he's a character that when I read The Hobbit and the trilogy, I didn't I didn't see him as annoying as they ended up making him in my mind to me. I don't know if it was like a move for like a toy or to make him like a little more childlike. He's obviously simple. I mean, they, they I think they describe him as such like kind of mentally deficient in the books yeah but i think you're right i don't know i don't know if that that comes through where i just feel like he's he's bordering for me on on being annoying and i do remember as a kid watching you know and being introduced to the movies with dad as we go to see them it just kind of remarking that i didn't see everything the way that it's being brought to bear in the films and i think he was one of those characters but obviously he's a celebrate i mean andy circus's performance is celebrated and I think it's really good too. I just think that this is such a an ensemble that it's easy not to get focused too focused on in on anyone, which is nice. That's a good point too. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, I mean, one actor who is better than the next. I mean, yeah, we talked about that with Two Towers. Like they're all there's no weak link in that chain, which is very rare. You know, there really isn't. Not for not that I could think of at the moment. I, you know, you're talking about dozens of actors. You know, dozens of, you know, quote unquote main characters, which is interesting. Let me ask you a question before you go on. Do you find, because of the model of 
the books and, and therefore the movies and jumping from one party to the next, especially at the beginning of the two towers onward, you're jumping from one set of adventurers or good guys to the next. There's a couple of different groups going on, a few different groups. Do you Did you find as you were watching Return of the King, the extended edition, that that was the least pleasurable or the 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 group you were looking forward to the least was going to Sam Frodo and sometimes Gollum that that was the least pleasant to watch like you were like oh I, you know you found yourself wanting to get back to Gimli Legolas Aragorn or Rohan or yeah Gollum. I know I, I totally agree in fact I think someone I don't know that I I feel like someone wrote in about this we might not have used it, it, it Someone was saying that they basically are renowned in their group of friends for having just skipping all of those scenes. Is that just interesting? Watching everything else. Yeah. I realized something, Kyle, with this. Please. And watching it this time, because I definitely had that sensation during the two towers. Obviously. We, and we talked about it, that it was unpleasant and sort of dour and just not really fun to watch. And we liked more like the adventure, especially the first half of the fellowship and everything. But I realized what an amazing job they do, especially in Return of the King with the Sam, Frodo, and Gollum sort of expedition the more you know through Mordor to Mount Doom sure. that they do this awesome job of making it very unpleasant to behold. They're dirty, they're they're grimy, it's cold. When they go to sleep, they have their head on a rock. You know? Mm. They they mm. they have nothing to eat. They're starving. They're thirsty. Their lips are dry. It's very, very unpleasant. They do a great job of like even in the close-ups and the medium shots, you could see the dirt in their fingernails and like you could just see that they haven't had you just want to take them and put them in a lake somewhere. It's like, yeah, Jesus no, I totally, Christ, when's the last time you saw water? Right. You know? It's awesome. And I think it makes it really unpleasant. You know, and, and you know, you could just see the unpleasantness in the acting too. Like they really feel, these actors really feel like they're in that place doing that thing. Like, and you know, not only that, but the overarching thing is what they're doing is like almost impossible and beyond hope. And they're putting themselves through these conditions of utmost like, you know, any, anything that would be adverse to humanity, they're, they're, they're enduring through this. And I think that's what it is. Cause I think it must be a pretty typical notion that those are the parts that are the least fun to watch. It's like, let's get back to something that's more, you know, let's get back to what Gandalf's doing or like even what's going on in Mordor with the orcs, like anything right. like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it, it's, it's just a, an interesting piece of irony in the sense that Indeed, what they're doing is what it's all about. Everyone, everyone is doing everything in service of these two getting to Mount Doom. And yet we don't really want to watch it that much because Great it, it is hard. And, and I, I had said to Mike, it's so funny you brought up that I, by the time they, they enter, like Sam's like a doorway, Mr. Frodo and all. And then they they go and they get in there. I'm like, these guys are fucking worse for wear. There are some shots where it looks like someone just beat the ever-loving shit out of Samwise Gamgee. Like, just absolutely bashed him the fuck up in He's every way done. with a baseball bat and hit him with lacrosse balls and shit. I don't know. You know, so it is funny. Like, they are on their last leg, and you feel for them. But oh, you really do. We, we don't really – it's the least pleasurable thing. When you look at the, the, the runtime, like, yeah, you probably – even you probably could have cut out 10 minutes of this. This I think we probably would have been okay. Yeah, like it's enough. But I wanted to ask you, since we're talking about Sam, and I, I, I don't know if you have any more insight into this. Luke Morgan wrote in, in about this and says, Good day, Colin and Dagan. Long time listener, first time writing in. Thank you, Luke, for writing Thank in. Thank you. Did you like the change of having Frodo turn on Sam for a time? Was that an improvement over what took place in the books or not, in your opinion? See, so I don't even remember this. I don't remember that either. I guess 
this is different. So the whole thing of Sam getting mad at, or I guess Frodo getting mad at Sam yeah. and then getting rescued from the spider, that happens in a different way in the book? I don't really know. Yeah, I don't Do you have any insight that. into that? I don't remember that. I, I do like Sam being pitted against Frodo because it's the ultimate drama. It's the last two characters you expect to be at odds with each other. And it's all, I mean, much of it is, you know, well, it's two things really. It's Frodo being under the stress of the ring. But in a larger part, it's due to Gollum scheming and what he wants to happen. The way he thinks he's going to achieve his ends is by pitting these two against each other. So it's really heartbreaking because when you see, you know, sort of Gollum plants that idea like to Frodo, like he's going to ask for the ring. And then Gollum sets those wheels in motion. So it does end up that way where Sam does ask for the ring. But Sam's genuinely saying, you know, Sam's a noble dude. He's genuinely saying, like, I want to help my friend and relieve him of this burden for a little while, you know? And the way Frodo takes it, and of course, being under the thralls of the ring, and that, that you know, he's he's not going to let anybody have it. He's taking exception to like, you want my thing, you know? You you covet my ice cream bar type thing, you know? <laughs> right. So, so it's, you know, I, I think it's awesome. I, I And it's funny, I don't remember the way it plays out in the book. I think it's probably similar, but there probably are those things that set it that do set it apart from the book and just playing it up for visual drama and stuff. But I do like the way the movie does it. I, I enjoy it. I think it's um, you know, because you're really you, you who knows if you didn't know the story, let's say you're just jumping into this film, you never read the book, you would never, you know, it get the the drama gets heightened to such a degree that you're like, maybe they will fall out. Maybe these two are going to fall out. And that's to the detriment of the whole quest. Who knows? So I like it for the for the dramatic you know, elements of that. Well, Eric Seaback wrote into us on Patreon and says, hi, guys, big fan of the show. I have to say, as a fan of the first two films, that this one always puts me to sleep. The scenes with Frodo and Sam are so long, <laughs> frequent, boring and repetitive. I find myself fast forwarding through those sections it's so just weird. to make it through. Do you, Jen, share the same feelings of bromance boredom? Okay. Thanks for all you do. The show is a huge highlight of the week. I don't. I mean, I feel like the bromance between the the four hobbits, but of course Sam and Frodo specifically, and of course Merry and Pippin specifically with them with each other as well. True, is quite endearing. I mean that I that I never grow tired of. To be honest, I I, I was just a little tired of like I said Gollum. So I have no problem. Do you have a problem with the the shining bromance? Because <laughs> it's funny too. There are just there's a scene. There are certain scenes like when they go to the various cities and. And at the end, when they're celebrating after the victory and it's like, oh, there are women, there's women in this movie. Like It's just it just all is about bro- there are a couple of women, obviously, but there it's just bromance. Do you, oh, get, do you get tired of it? No, and it really is. I mean, the Sam, uh, specifically the Sam Frodo thing. I mean, it's, it's a it's an epic bromance of fiction, you know, but I, you know, I can read not to be cheesy or to be too schmaltzy, but. I can relate to a bromance thing. I feel that way about people in my life, you know, with Colin and my friend PJ and stuff like that. So, and I love the fact that it's more of a one-sided bromance. Like obviously Frodo loves Sam too, but Sam's like, he's just super down for his boy. You know what I mean? Like that loyalty, the, the loyalty to that end is something really special. And I think it's also in the performances, you know, Sean Astin and Elijah Wood, they just, they just knock it out of the park with that. I could see, you know, we talk about this with the two towers. It crosses over into kind of funny esque territory, not purposely sometimes. And that's okay, you know. But for the most part, I think it's really a great part of the story, you know, because there's no way without feeling the way they do for each other, especially Sam for Frodo, there's no way they're pulling this off. You know, it's the concrete that's holding the entire thing together. 
Indeed. So it's I for me it's yeah I I I definitely enjoy it. All right, let's talk about Saruman a little bit. Brent Lindquist wrote into us and said, "Hey fellas, I'd love to know what you think of the omission of the scouring of the Shire. Saruman's fate is one of my least favorite parts of how Peter Jackson handled the trilogy. And while I understand that this movie is already long enough, Saruman is a crucial character, and he's totally omitted from the theatrical version of the Return of the King. And they certainly take some shortcuts with him in the extended cut. Thanks for the podcast. So I found this weird as well." I don't remember, not just the omission of that, which I remember being a controversy at the time. Yeah. And they don't really pick up that that ever happened at the end of the film. Right. Either. So that is omitted and it it does remove some of the agency from why, for instance, the halflings are interested in this battle at all while they um, are usually in their, you know, in their little part of Middle Earth drinking and eating and farming and doing whatever they do. So. That is a little strange, but I also didn't remember. It's true. It's almost like he's a he. he, Saruman's almost like gone. Like it doesn't even matter anymore. Like it's almost like he was like a MacGuffin or something. Yeah. So how do you feel about the way he was handled and all that? I I do love him on the tower. What trying to cast one last spell, seeing Isengard in ruins and the 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 tree folk are there and the and it's totally flooded because they destroyed all those like dams they were using and it's very cool so i like all of that but what what did you think about the way they kind of handled him because they kind of just dispatched with him almost like darth maul where it doesn't even seem like he's very interested very actually was very important at all yeah like how instrumental is this guy going to be obviously who's cool for a little while but then what happened yeah i do remember this being a polarizing thing especially when the film came out one of the biggest changes from the book especially in return of the king and you know it starts with the confrontation with Saruman in in Isengard at Orthanc in his tower where Gandalf and Theoden and the party confront him. And one of my favorite scenes in the book too is what they I think it's in the if, don't correct me if I'm wrong but I think it's in the two towers in the novel. For this they pushed it into Return of the King. They confront him. Gandalf breaks his staff. Saruman's like what the fuck? Like Gandalf's ten times more powerful. What happened? And then they sort of just leave him there. You know, they sort of, they don't murder him in the book. So, so Grima, Grima doesn't murder Saruman in the novel. They just off to their own, they just leave him there. They just kind of cast him out. They say, you're done, you're finished, your staff's broken, you have no more power here. And which is almost kind of a cooler end. But then in the novel, everything's said and done. The ring's disposed of, the hobbits head back to the Shire. And then there's this guy, they, on the way back, there's all this drama because they're hearing about this guy. If I'm, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while, but there's this guy named Sharky that's terrorizing the Shire. So they're trying to get back as fast as they can. Well, Sharky turns out to be Saruman and he turns out to be this, you know, indispensable or, you know, uh, sort of in, in a way invincible cancer that just keeps coming back. And now, in a vindictive turn, he's just like terrorizing the Shire. That's what he's going to do to pay back for his insult, for his being cast down and everything like that, which is interesting. I like that Saruman never really goes away, and then he has to sort of become like a local villain. He goes from being like, you know, a Mordor or a Sauron-esque villain trying to be buddy-buddy with Sauron to being like this local thug, you know, bad guy, which is, which is actually kind of really cool if you think about it. In the movie, they just murder him. You know, he's murdered in that confrontation. Staff's broken. Grima stabs him, falls from the tower, dies, and then Legolas kills Grima. Grima, of course, with the arrow in the heart. Yeah, so there is that, that difference. And they get that orb as well. Right, the Palantir. 
right which is the seeing stone which is like this whole thing about and you know the histories of the of the the palantirs confuse me a little bit they're supposed to be i think initially they were supposed to be a communication device between either the quote unquote good guys that they could see things they could maybe see the future they could kind of look into each other's realms and almost like you know like <laughs> this is a terrible thing to say but almost like primitive cell phone type thing you right. know, with perks, with benefits, because you could also see a little bit of the future. So right. think about right. if our iPhones could do that type of thing, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, big differences with the with the the Saruman character. But um, which one do you like better? Like, would you? I can't. The thing is, I can't see making this movie any longer. Like, if they got back to the Shire and then they're dealing with Sharky and all that kind of stuff, it's like yeah, it, it almost feels like it, it is like it's almost anticlimactic. It's just I don't know. I don't know. I. I felt like they had Grima kill him in order to get rid of this question that might have been asked by the audience reasonably so about like well why can't he just help you and that's that's why I think they they might have felt the need to dispatch of him in such a way for the audience so that the audience isn't like but this dude's working for him and you're just leaving him there or you're just not gonna he doesn't, right. you gotta doesn't really make it doesn't really make any <laughs> sense like why wouldn't you try to leverage his information or turn him in some way even if you can't trust him so i understand people being upset with that but i actually the only thing i really remember about that is just that it was a big deal back back then i do remember that people were complaining about this on the earlier internet uh, yeah definitely it was one of the, yeah well it does seem like one of those big napster era you know argument chat room argument type things oh definitely Gibbets and crows Gibbets. don't hurt <laughs> <laughs> Dodor is a great we shall have a, peace I love Theoden in that scene man he's just like peace because you know like he's got Saruman's got that and I don't know how much they play it up in the films but he has that silver tongue thing where he just talks he's, he's doing the Bob Ross thing he's making you it's like oh, all right yeah this guy just didn't kill thousands of our people like he almost like he lulls you into sub, submission with that silver tongue and that was supposed to be one of his powers like he would he was a, a master of that and he would he would get you under his spell, you know. And Theoden's just like, "Fuck you! We'll have peace when you're fucking hanging from a gibbet with this for the sport of my crows." Or <laughs> so epic, dude! I love. Yeah, that it's all, it's good stuff. No, for sure. And in the, in those scenes too, I do love you know seeing Treebeard again. And there's a lot of good Treebeard. There are some great Treebeard Treebeard quotes, but I love when he says, uh, "Trees will come to live here. Young trees, wild trees." <laughs> It's just a great, just a great character. And um, so next I want to talk about, I guess, Minas Tirith as a location and also, you know, Gondor and the Kings of Gondor. And I love the the tree star logo. It's like so cool. I got to I got to find a shirt with that on it or whatever. Oh, that would be a good shirt. You're right. Yeah, it would be. It would be really cool. I, I was saying that I, I. I love this complex architecture in this world wherein it would have been so much easier for you to have just built this thing against the mountain and yet you build it into the mountain and it's just it's just it's incredible it's just really cool visual flair all these like alcoves in various places of middle earth that are just one with nature basically which I guess is really part of the theme of the film so what did you think about this location and kind of the the ultimate battle that culminates around it is is pretty cool to to behold and does hold up very well oh it's beautiful it's so cool i love that you have these last two strongholds of men you know these once great i don't know these one two once great places of of mankind of civilization you have and we see a lot in the two towers we see 
a lot of Rohan and including Helm's Deep and everything like that. And then for this movie, we get to see Gondor and Minas Tirith and that whole great sort of structure of man, like this whole, the, the two great empires of men, the two remaining ones, really, I guess you should, you could say. And it's just so cool. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a set piece, you know, it's just this beautiful stone, not even a palace, just like an entire city basically built into the side of the mountain and the whole, um, tail with the tree and the tree coming back to life and how that was a, you know, that was a symbol of the entire place and the entire civilization. Super, super, super cool. And, you know, basically controlled by a steward, you know, in Denethor, who is completely out of his mind. And, you know, he's got, he lost his son. He's got the son that he doesn't favor still around that whole arc taking place in that, that whole thing. And also like making you wonder, like, is this going to be the end of these two great historic civilizations? Is this going to be the end of the two last strongholds of men? Is this going to be it? For them and you know the way it's ravaged during the battle and it's just all but destroyed denethor falling from the great height you know on fire falling from that great precipice up there and everything like that it's so cool i love the way it centers around it's a beautiful place but there's also a great sort of bleakness and sadness about us when the soldiers are heading out to battle and they they, they know the odds are all but against them and you know there's just something so cool about stone you know, like it, it's something so cool about, you know, how it endures, but how it erodes, how it rounds out from the water over time. And, you know, it kind of felt like that was a, you know, like a heavy symbolism for what was going on in the world, you know, with this, this epic battle of good versus evil. I just thought, I just love it. I, I don't think they could have done any better with realizing these places for the screen because they're great places of our imagination from the novels. And then there's a lot of responsibility, man. That that makes me nervous just thinking about it, like actually visually translating it for the first time, you know, for such a, you know, obviously we had the earlier Bakshi and Rankin and Bass version, animated things and stuff like that and illustrations and all that thing. But for, you know, sanctioned for big Hollywood, big budget pictures, it's a big undertaking. And they did, they did an awesome job. I mean, it's so cool. Like every, it seems like every stone was thought about, you know, every, every sort of, keystone every corner every staircase so I, I you know i can't i can't imagine them doing that any better yeah i like how they leave that one huge natural stone in the middle of it which they then walk on top of like at the very very top and that's where the the tree is and like the really green grass and so cool yeah really striking visuals and very bright to dark which is cool it's like one of the only bright parts of the entire film is actually on top of that in that area with the, the the dying king tree or whatever it is. What about the bad guys? I guess I'm. This is one of the things I had mentioned earlier. It's almost hard to know like what is even going on at this point. In some way, like who is Sauron and what is the Eye, the Great Eye, and all of this. And I love the way they have. Of course, the rendition of the Great Eye is awesome. I love how it's literally just like a spotlight. It's so cool. It's, it's very cool. It's creepy as shit. And it absorbs its information as it sees things. And yet uh, I'm and I was looking. That's why I went on the Lord of the Rings Wikipedia, whatever it's called, Middle Earth Wikipedia or whatever to to read about the orcs, because I was trying to figure out and I, I, I'm sure it's explained in the books, but I don't remember the Urukai are being made by other orcs. And I was like, well, are the orcs a sentient race like do they have a society because as i was looking at their they, we see a little bit of them it looks like they have like merchants they obviously have 
people that are making equipment and leather workers and blacksmiths and I was just really interested in like what is the motive behind this and yet it doesn't seem like they have any and I don't really know what it would be and then you have these other human which which I'm more fascinated about these humans like the the seafaring human pirate type enemies and the people that ride the elephants what is in it for them we don't really understand like what this whole it's supposed to be the end of the age of men so why are they fighting if that's what it's literally openly being called i i guess is there any clarity as far as you know of what 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 the point is of all of this that's the thing i'm trying to kind of struggle to understand it is a weird thing i've been thinking a lot about this with watching this movie and it's you know a lot of it to me and you know a lot of it i might just not know because i am very interested in the lord of the rings and the lore and this companion fiction and the, you know the similar alien and all that stuff but I, I my knowledge is limited i don't that's not what i study day in and day out <laughs> But I you was thinking know. a lot about this. And you have this in fiction, right? You could even say this about Star Wars. It's like, it seems like the goal of the quote unquote bad guys is just conquest. They just want to rule everything. And everybody else is going to be under their thumb. That's the goal. So you could say Dr. Evil, the Empire and Star Wars, you know, of course, Sauron and the powers of Mordor. All of, the, all of these things in fiction, it's like that seems to be the overarching goal. And it doesn't seem to be any more complicated than that. I love your point about orcs. Like, I thought about that, what you just said, when you see like their war camps, right? Just like the men have their war camps, they have their tents, they have their barrels filled with water, they have their provisions, they have their crates, they have all these, these type of things. So, of course, and we, of course, we know they eat and they drink and all that kind of stuff. So they need to survive like men do. We know that orcs are in this world, in the Tolkien universe or whatever, are sort of like the dark elves you know we know they're sort of like the dark version of elves right if, if i'm not mistaken so there's a lot to be said there but but you raise a good point like do they live naturally in any part of this middle earth you know do they inhabit any or or is there their home mordor and is their role to be soldiers unlike elves who live naturally in the world and fight when they need to fight right so it's a different thing that's a great that's a great point and a great question and then you have the whole point about really just, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Like you have all of these different races. So you have the dark side, you have the light side, and you have everybody that aligns with them. Now you, t- you talk about like the Eastern men, the pirates, the mercenaries, the bounty hunters that align themselves with Mordor, right? You could ascertain that they're just trying to get on the right side of history. They're trying to they they're trying to draw up with the winning side because they, you know, the power of Mordor is overwhelming. I think talk about OP, right? Like there was nobody that thought Mordor wasn't going to come out on top when you look at the odds. So you have these men who are less scrupulous aligning themselves with Mordor. So when Mordor wins, they think that they're not going to be crushed, like the men of Gondor and the men of, you know, Minas Tirith and all that kind of stuff. And Rohan. And and the elves and the dwarves and the eagles and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's such there's such a lot there to take in with that. And how complicated is it supposed to be? You know. And also just thinking of Sauron, very traditional evil thing. Maybe even harkening back to like mythology or Beowulf epic tales of good versus evil at thousands of year old. It's like you have this evil that is always every age of man has this evil that they have to face. And it seems like it always takes on a new physical form every so often. It's defeated, 
and then it, it's it's physical manifestation is defeated. It's it's sort of spiritual presence lives on, and it, it embodies a new host for the next age of man, right? And we know Sauron, the original evil in Middle Earth in this world, was Melkor, and then Sauron came out of that original evil, which was Melkor, and then Sauron's sort of generation. But then we also know that Sauron's been around. You know, he's been vanquished before, defeated, comes back. We know it's happened at least once. So, and then he kind of embodied, and then when he comes back, it's like a, it's like a flu, it's like a virus, right? It's like COVID that it comes back. It's a new strain. You knew how to defeat the old strain. So it doesn't seem any more complicated than that. I, I guess if you dig deep enough, you could find out more about Tolkien's or at least the way people understood Tolkien's things. I'm not sure how much he said about this kind of stuff or how much of it was, you know, just in his head or maybe even not thought about it at all, you know? But yeah, you know, mean, people tra- a lot of that is people translating this stuff over the years and what they think, right, you know? Right, so, It is interesting because I, I was trying to think about that. I'm like, well, what is the – what is everyone's end game? And uh, the humans thinking that they might survive or whatever. It would be interesting to know, too – Obviously, those tribes or those countries or kingdoms were not wiped out in in totality. They they lost their armies or whatever armies they sent. So it would be interesting to know too what their fate was, since they went with the wrong side. Do, yeah. Do, do does now the the one true king come and bring them back into the fold? Or there's just a lot of see. That's what I I was I found myself so interested and kind of drawn in more of wanting to know more about all this ancillary stuff and not really caring a great deal about the main quest that they were on. And that maybe that's the sign of a good of good fiction where it wants you leaving more. I felt the same way about in some way about Game of Thrones where it's like, oh man, like this is cool all this but what is going on over here? Let's talk a little bit more about let's just stay at the wall the entire time. It's fa- right, the yeah. wall. It's fascinating, right? You have, like even the, you're absolutely right because as soon as you see the pirates or those brigands that wash up and then Aragorn's like go back because we're going to kick your ass, like don't land that ship up here type of thing. You also see the guys you know the very three hundred esque elephant warrior guys and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, like, Mad Max. They're almost like It's like where it's like Mad Max. Almost they reminded me of in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. Mad Max three hundred. You know what? P- pick a video game. You know, right? God of War. <laughs> yeah, Rage. Like, all that. Yeah. Kind of that stuff. Oh yeah, God of War. God definitely. Of War, right. So, but you automatically you're compelled. You're like, well, all right, I want to see where these guys live. Like when they're not fighting on top of these giant elephants. Like where do they? Where do they hold up? Well, like, what do their civilizations look like? Their places of, right. of, you know, do they live on the ocean? Do they live in the desert? Like, what's the story? Because you really, again, you really only see, and I guess man is really down to Rohan and Gondor. And you don't, you know, everybody, or unless, you know, the other met pockets of men are much smaller. Like, they even talk about where, I think Theoden is like, like marching along the lines, like his front lines. And like, where are these guys? Where are these guys? And like, they didn't show up. So like- it's it's suggested that there are smaller civilizations, but Gondor and Rohan are the ones holding it down. You know, that's like L.A. and New York. You know, right. and Chicago, and then maybe Chicago. You know what I mean? That and the other ones are the small, the smaller cities, the the sea level cities and stuff. So yeah, it's it's fascinating. Just I don't know. I just want to know specifically more about the orcs' motives and if they just beget each other in some supernatural way, because they are corrupted elves. We know that. But yeah, just like where they might live naturally. It's always like, where, it's like, where do chick, where are chickens just really roaming around? <laughs> it's a good point. And then we yeah, know there's like thousands left after the battle. It's like Gandalf's like, there's 10,000 orcs between Mordor and, and Frodo. And we have to do something. He's like, 
they didn't send out the other where you know they just kept the other ten thousand reserve. How many orcs are there? You know, it's right. interesting. They, yeah, it is. It's it's fascinating, and I, I do love the totally inorganic nature of the of the orcs armor and stuff. I mean, obviously they have some leather pieces and whatnot, but I, I was especially drawn to their bows and arrows. I don't know if you noticed this. They they have like arrows that use it's just all wood. So like they have just frayed wood at the back for like that, where the feathers would be and stuff. It's just very, oh, that's cool. Whoever did that kind of stuff is like, whoever made those kinds of decisions. Very cool. Cause I, I did like, I was just amazed about how well the orcs still stood up. And I'm like, yes, it's so nice that you made the, the right decision and didn't make these in the battle droids or something yet. I do also think that there's a question to be asked about, well, if the orcs are just manufactured, yeah, they seem that they understand language they're they're telling them to get in lines. They all seem to have their own weapons of choice. There seems to be ranks because there's like, you know, they're they're doing like inspections and stuff like that. And so sure. I'm just going to ask the same question I asked in episode one about this, which is like, why wouldn't you just make the officer versions of the orcs? If they're all just made out of whole cloth, then why would you make any infantry battle droids? There's a commander battle droid. Just make him over and over. Whatever is special about him, replicate yeah. him. And uh, so that's my one. Question. That's a, a hang up for me where I'm like, just make all of the big guy. And also just make all those are guys. the trolls and yeah. all the other creatures that they show. Are they part of that society or like, is there a troll society? You know, <laughs> that's that, what I'm, I'm wondering. All, it's it, I am. I'm like, because like, are they are they in league now? And it's cool. There's just, yeah, like a lot of these smaller groups. And then also we see the small some of the smaller good guy groups like the Eagles and others that come in later where you kind of wonder like where. And of course, the. I didn't say it to Mike until it was all done because I know it ruins it for everyone. But I'm like, all right. So the argument against this whole thing now is why no one just went to the Eagles and said, can you take this ring <laughs> and fly in the Mordor and just drop it into the into the mountain? Right. Or if you don't trust that, you'll be maybe you'll get taken over by it. Just take this hobbit in your claws and bring him. Drop him. And oh, drop no. him in there. <laughs> Don't tell them you're going to drop them in there. Yeah. So I, I was always, I, that that by the way, does that bother you at all? I know that that's like the thing everyone makes fun of is like, why no, I mean, that's a great point, especially when you see the Eagles sort of come and and battle the Nazgul and the Nazgul are shook, dude. Not, they don't have a chance. Like the Eagles are fierce, right? Like, especially when you think, all right, their air defense isn't even savvy enough to deal with the Eagles. Just send the Eagles in, you know, but the Eagles, I think the Eagles seem a little elfish to me. They're like the elves of the air. You know, they're just kind of like going to be off to their own devices until they're really needed. Like they're not, you know, they're nationalists. They're right. not going to get involved unless, you know, unless it's going to be the zero hour. That's how the Eagles strike me. It's like, we have well, our that's own what, problems. That, that, well, that's where the whole United States reference to them come, like why everyone thinks it's such an overt reference to the U.S. There you go. Coming in and rescuing everyone at the end and fight, you know, taking the credit basically i know they could have been giant geese you chose eagles come on right i know it exactly our bird but i also feel like i'm curious about their society now where, what's going on with the eagles where are they who they're where do they live oh is so, that what they're called eeries i don't know yeah oh, okay. yes i'm gonna go with yes <laughs> yes okay fine. that's fair enough <laughs> dig i wanted to ask you there's just a random character that we see Ke kevin komaki wrote in and said that dude that came out of mordor's gate before the battle looks so cool so like their major domo bib fortuna like guy there i loved that scene i don't so know good. if that scene that scene must be in the book but i dig that i don't know i i want to just call out that scene because oh, i love so how he's good. like is there anyone i can parlay with or whatever like he's oh it's almost like he's a proper diplomat oh it's so good it's, dude yeah he's yeah. like the emissary yeah the mouth of sauron i love the fact that you just have his mouth like he's probably blind right 
and he's obviously very intelligent. He's also extremely insulting. Yeah, like, is there anyone here worthy of the treat with me or whatever? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, just insulting the shit out of everybody. <laughs> looks like his mouth's bleeding. It looks very painful. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't. I dig that. I understand why he's aggravated. He's, you know, he's probably got lady problems. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of problems. He's lonely, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that, and that scene, correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, that scene was not in the theatrical version. That was reserved for the extended version. I oh, really? I don't know. I don't remember. I just, I, I, I if I'm not yeah, mistaken, I loved it. It was great. And that was one of the ones I was so excited to see. It was like, and that's one of the scenes you look at and you're like, why did they leave this out? This is amazing. And even after all that, like appealing, still appealing to like calling Sauron out at his own gates, like get out here, like we're going to, and like saying like, you're going to answer for your crimes type of thing. And then he sends this guy out. The only thing I don't like about this, and I think you and I have talked about this before pre knockback. I don't remember, but I think it's sort of a character betraying moment for Aragorn. I don't feel like Aragorn would have, would have beheaded the guy. In mid sense, you know, he's obviously egregious. He's lying. He's saying that they tortured the shit out of their best friend. You know, he's he's extreme. Obviously, he's the mouth of evil and everything like that. But I just don't feel like Aragorn would have done that. I just unless it was sort of like saying like he's still growing to that kingly role, like he's not there yet, but he's going to be there in like another hour. It's right. I don't know. For me, it was like <laughs> not the proper thing for a nobleman to do. You know right, I, mean? I think I think it was because he couldn't. If what he was saying was true, then everything was for naught. Right, and he almost, exactly. Right. So at exactly. that point, I almost I almost interpreted it as him being like, "Well, fuck it. I mean, we have nothing. If this is true, we have nothing to lose. If he's lying, we'll lop his head off. It doesn't really matter. Point. You know, that's a really good point. Yeah, I know they're saying like everything's lost anyway. So fuck it. You know, this is yeah. This and is that's why he says he just me. he just didn't believe it because I do love the acting there where he, he realizes that. He says something like, oh, the halfling is important to you or special to you or something. And and talking about how his little body suffered so much pain. It's, it's great writing. And Gandalf but, knows he's lying. He's telling right. the like, shut up. Like, you know, shut up. Like you're acknowledging the fact of our, the whole thing. You know what I mean? So, the so hobbits cool. are always just getting everyone in this trouble. They're always, you know, I love you, Pippin, but you got to be quiet sometimes. What about the, the well, we talked about the Nazgul and the, the Witch King. We can talk about a little bit. What would you think about kind of the leadership of the bad guys and their appearances? I, I. I love the huge, tall helmet in which you cannot see the face. It's just as if it's an entity. What did you think about kind of the the various designs of all that? I love also his mace. Oh, the giant mace. And you can just, it makes such a realistic noise as it hits into the ground. It's like when you drop something heavy into dirt. Yeah, it just sinks. Yeah, it's just awesome. Like I just, and you, yeah. So what did you think about all that, about those kinds of visuals? So good. I love the Witch King, the Witch King of Angmar. I love you know, I always love that model of like the bag, like the Sauron having his lieutenants. Like there's other badass, like the mini bosses, right? We, right, can, we right. came up with 8-bit video games. We know, we know about boss battles and all that kind of stuff. You got to have the mini bosses. And I, I, wish, I wish we got more cool stuff with the Witch King because we hear about him. Gandalf's kind of explaining him to Pippin. He's like, you know, the, you know, the enemy has these has these cohorts these these lieutenants that are going to come out that we're going to have to battle and they're extremely powerful and all that and then as i think it's when pippin sort of summons gandalf to go save faramir on the funeral pyre he's not dead obviously and they're kind of intercepted by the nazgul and the witch king and they have that standoff and you're like all right this is going to be an epic battle and the witch king just 
he has that flaming sword, right? Shades of Beric puts a sword up, sword goes into flames. He's like, oh, I thought shit, the exact same thing. Yeah, I thought, so, so funny. it's gonna be so good. It's gonna be like the whole Balrog battle all over again, dealing with like a major, you know, somebody who's like a major threat for even Gandalf. And then he just breaks Gandalf's staff, just like Gandalf did the Saruman. And you're like, oh shit, like Gandalf is fucked. And then you hear the horns or whatever, and the the Nazgul and the Witch King get distracted and they fly off. So Gandalf could have been killed in that moment. A little bit of suspension of disbelief, right? Right. It's so funny you say that because I said to Mike, I'm like, why didn't you just do could it? Have just finished him off. Two it seconds. Could, and then turn around and flew away. That's it. He had no staff. It was just, I, I totally, it's so funny you brought up those those few things. I was saying the same exact things, the Beric comparison and then the, yeah, where I was like, you could have just murdered Gandalf. Right. Why, it's, that was, that was, should have been thought through a little more. That's a little bit of a weak point, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit stretched for me. And then you could have had the proper payoff with him facing well, I love the scene where, you know, they're kind of, Theoden's kind of on his last legs and he's still trying to rally the troops. I love the character of Theoden. I really think he's a great guy. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. So good. And they're kind of on their last legs and he's trying to summon the troops and get their spirits up and he turns and he sees the Witch King flying at him and even his face is like, fuck me. Like, yeah, I it's awesome. It's great acting. You yeah, know, you like- just see the despair. You know what I mean? Like even in this king's face, like this, this epic hero's face is just like, fuck. And then he gets killed. And then he's killed. The Witch King is killed. Like he takes out the giant mace. The bottom of the mace is the size of a Volkswagen. You're like, fuck. Yeah. Like every link in the chain is like this big. It's like, this is going to be amazing. This is like the ultimate boss fight. Yeah. It's like a Castlevania boss or something. And then, yeah, exactly. So cool to look at. You think, like, all right, we're going to get this payoff for this Witch King. We're going to see an epic battle. And then like he's destroyed by Merry and Eowyn. And no offense to Eowyn. Like she's obviously a proper warrior and she's extremely courageous. But they, they, first of all, she cuts off the Nazgul's head. She dodges, right. cuts off the Nazgul's head. There's no battle. It's like, all right, that's how easy that thing is to defeat. And then they just oh God, dispatch like of the Witch King. It's like, oh, come on. Like, you know, he swings the mace around a few times, breaks her shield, maybe breaks her rib, whatever, you know, type of thing. And you're like, all right, this is a proper start. Like, she's completely overpowered. There's no way this, the, it doesn't matter how courageous she is. No one's going to be able to stand up to this guy. And then they kill him. And he's killed by Mary. It's like, you know, it was like, oh man, like I I needed a little more with that. I needed just a little bit more of a payoff for that character because he's so cool. You know, he's got um, that poison blade and you know, he goes all the way back to stabbing. He's the one that stabbed Frodo at Weathertop, you know, and gave him that poisonous wound that he almost died from. So we have some history there and some build up. It's like, all right, give us a proper payoff for this dude. Obviously he's got to die. Right, but let's see. Let's see him like really like do some damage before he dies. Nope. Yeah, it's a, a little strange. I, I did want to give a shout out. Um, we, we were laughing about all of the different memes that come out of these movies, and Micah pointed out one of the great memes, which is when I think it's Mary is going to. It's Mary, I think, that goes and lights the torch. Or is that Pippin? I can't remember. One of them. Oh, it's Pippin. It's Pippin. Okay, yeah. and Gandalf is like kneeling down. And he's like, you know, don't. You know, it's like you know you can't fail whatever. And then you see him just kind of running off like a little body running off. And there's a really funny meme I get brought up where it's like, you know, it's like your mom telling you to go get the onions while you're at the grocery, like at the checkout counter. And then it's, so it's just that. a picture of that. And then it's just a picture of him like running away. Or <laughs> That's it's, awesome. So just such a memeable movie. It's so funny. Oh, I've, so I've appreciated good. so many more of the memes after having seen the movies again. We're like, oh, these are so good. They're so funny. And so many more to come, I think. Dave, let me ask you about we, we let's go back to the fellowship, not the movie, but the fellowship itself. Let's talk about 
thing. You know, our favorite troll, uh, our favorite, I was going to say troll, our favorite uh, dwarf or dwarf, <laughs> as Dagan says. I say dwarf too. So uh, Gimli and of course, uh, Legolas, our elf. I have to say my big critique or one of my big critiques of the two towers and what one of the reasons why I think it's the weakest of the three movies in hindsight is it's just Gimli fucking comedy hour. And I feel like <laughs> they really toned it down in this movie. I don't know if that was by intent. I don't know if they got that feedback and they were able to cut things permanently to not make him like Don Rickles in Middle Earth. And <laughs> it makes the things that he says and the things that he does that are funny because he is a comical character in the books, as I recall. He's supposed to be a gregarious, you know, they're supposed to be gregarious and jo- jovial and drunk and loud and all that. And that's great. But then it makes some of the other stuff that he does really funny. The drinking contest I thought was really cute. And he says a quote in there, which is, it, it is an absolutely amazing quote. I think it's on my first page, which is, yeah, it's the dwarves that go swimming with the little hairy women. <laughs> it's like just ridiculous. He just says like ridiculous quotes like that. And it's just so good. And I also enjoyed later on when they're going after the undead, you know, humans that they're trying to get in league with to kind of forgive them for their treachery in the past or whatever. And their their cowardice in the past, how it, like he's blowing at them. You know, and trying to like it's, it's, so it's just funny. And it's just it's it's it is funny. Like so, I feel like Gimli pops more in this movie for me in a positive way because they use him less, and it's less ridiculous in that regard. And I even think that they showed a lot of. First of all, I will make fun of this about Legolas: is that every shot of Legolas, and I, if you're not watching the video, you won't won't see this. But every shot of him is when he when it zooms in, it's like this. <laughs> You know, like, you know what I mean? With like the wet eyes and like, I thought thought I was looking at Orlando Bloom there for a second. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like every shot, every shot (laughs) is him looking like he has a shit eating grin on his face. Like as if he's like very like, yes, of course you're looking at me and I'm looking at you. And it's kind of, it's it's very, very becoming and like, you know, falling into the camera. And it's very funny, but he's such a likable character. And Orlando Bloom (laughs) is so fun as this character. That even the because we were making fun of him surfing like snowboarding down the stairs. Ugh. They have a very similar moment in this when he's killing one of the the elephant creatures. Yeah, and but it doesn't come off quite so bad. So how do you feel about my interpretation of Gimli and Legolas kind of reeling it in? And I I wish I knew if they were able if they got those notes and were able to kind of fix that in this one because why would they ramp it up so much and then stop? It's yeah. very similar to Jar Jar Binks, right? Like George Lucas had this fucking grand scheme now Jar Jar Binks in all three movies is a main character and and they were like and they took him out right like they made him a less important character because everyone's like there's no way you can have Jar 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 Binks is fucking sucks right he's the you worst. can't have Jar Jar Binks the character in this anymore and and I so is, do you think it's similar or, I mean talk to me about absolutely and, and, uh, I mean yeah I mean you have to talk about Gimli you have to talk about Legolas I mean shout out to Orlando Bloom doing the smolder for the camera I feel like oh, yeah. they told him like I, again, like, I don't want to land too hard on Orlando Bloom. I think he's fine. And I think he really looks the part. You know, he's very handsome. He's got that whole, he's got that whole, you know, fair skinned, like really handsome, like a elvish type of appeal, the physicality certainly. And, but I feel like they told him like, all right, Orlando, like elves are really solemn. They're self-satisfied, you know, like they're very comfortable in their skin. They're powerful, all that kind of stuff. I feel like they just should have also said like, but you could emote a little bit. Like you could actually be not be a robot elf. 
like that would be okay too, like type of thing. But, you know, that aside, he does have his sort of epic hero moment, but I feel like it's more Shadow of Colossus in this. Like he doesn't skateboard. He just, it shows the agility, you know, the prowess. You know, he's a good fighter. He's good with the bow. He's quick. He's extremely nimble. Okay, I get it. Like that was cool. Like that was the way to handle it. So I feel like they learned from that. And with Gimli, it's funny, right? You have like, I feel like it's John. Bad dates, Indy. Rise Davies, you know what I mean? Like I right. feel like they're just I feel again, I feel like they're just capitalizing on the Sala character a little bit. I feel like the problem with Gimli, I like it because you know the dwarves are kind of fearless. And he's definitely got that. Like he makes the joke at the at the the most, you know, tenacious moments. He makes a you know, he makes a at the, at the most tentative moments rather. He's he's making jokes and he's he's quipping and all that kind of stuff. I get it. I think what would have been cool if you you saw now, with the exception of The Hobbit, and that, of course, those movies don't count, we don't see a lot of dwarves. So I think if we got some more dwarves and some different personalities in the dwarves, then Gimli could have just stood out as his own character instead of like, oh, dwarves are like this, you know, which it feels like silly in a way. And of course, he has the playful rivalry with Legolas, and I like all that, where they're doing the count on the battlefield. And, it, you know, it talks to their courage. Still counts as one. Courage. <laughs> counts still counts as one <laughs> so it's so but you know for it would have been i guess you didn't really need more dimension in the gimli character but it would have been cool i think really more so than gimli it would have been cool to represent the dwarves a little better because even the dwarves a little better because the wharves the wharves a little better i can't say it normal i just, right, I just have a problem just they'll deal with it. They'll live. <laughs> so, but you know, even with the elves, you get it's mostly Legolas, but you get Caliborn and you get Galadriel and Elrond and Arwen, and you see some of the other dwarves in the other iterations and stuff. Uh, elves, rather. So, with the dwarves, it's like really all you're getting is Gimli. It's not really fair, you know, to represent a whole race of people, which is you know, poor Gimli. But and also the other thing with Gimli, and I know I've mentioned this before. I don't like. The axes. I don't like the long staff-like battle axes. Their axes should look like they weigh 150 pounds. You know, the blade should be like. They, I I feel like they should be stout. Like the, right, the blade right, looks right. like a like this axe looks like a, a normal man can't even pick it up. You know what I mean? It should just look like you know to swing this thing, I, which I guess is a typical D and D iteration of a what how we grew up the dwarves to you know to know of a, of a dwarf. I think of like. If you know anime, Record of Lotus War, I forget the dwarf's name in that, but he's really cool. He's got that big axe that looks like really like, looks like it's made of concrete. You know, I, that's what I really wanted. That's a big hang up for me for some reason. I don't know why. But besides that, I think, you know, I think because you have so much gravity in characters that are like all but humorless, like Aragorn, you know, I think the other Gimli and Legolas should have to balance him out a little bit with that levity, I think, because it's really the three of them for a big batch of these three films it's just the three of them on screen also i love the the lego last line where he's like what about as a friend when that you know who would have known i would have died with a dwarf or he's like what about a friend <laughs> and how about drunk lego lots he's like i think i'm feeling a little bit of tingling in this finger and gimli's yeah. like passing out it's great it's great yeah that that i i think they did a really nice job with them um in this film dig i wanted to ask you about quotes from this film ah. harold wrote into us and said hi gents 
I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. I find myself often performing this line at my friends most of the time completely unprompted. Now you've watched all three. Do you have a favorite quote from the films and why is it looks like meat's back on the menu, boys? And then late and then Lazy V wrote in and said, Howdy Island boys is run Shadow Fox. Show us the meaning of haste. Not one of the most badass lines of all time. Keep up thy good work as always. Thank you, Lazy V and Harold for writing in. Think are there any quotes from the film that stand out to you? I have quite a few actually, so I was curious if uh Do you really? Yeah. I, I just was writing down a lot of them, yeah, as I was going. I like a, yeah, Sam's not if I stick you first. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, Sam. Sam's been waiting to stick Frodo the three movies now. So. Well, before you tell me yours, you know what springs to yeah, mind for no, me? Please. Yeah. In a serious way. Aragorn's speech to the soldiers at the gates of Mordor. You know, I see the look in your eyes that would take the heart of me. That that one always gets me. That's a, re- that's a proper speech. And then Theoden's sort of rousing speech at the beginning of the battle. I guess, you know, the, the earlier battle to his troops when he's like, ride now. And he's, he's ro- rolling down the line, smacking everyone's spear with it, with his sword. I, lo- I love Theoden. I think he's a great character. And I think of the time that Gandalf spends on the edge of battle with Gandalf. Pippin. Yeah. Like everything they say, he says to Pippin about what death is going to be like and trying to be honest with his friend, but also comforting and seeing this character, you know, I love the Pippin and Merry thing. We talked about this a little bit with Two Towers, but it really drives home in this one where you see in the beginning of the film, you see Merry and Pippin, they're very Hobbit-like, right? Even in the midst of like Isengard being just totally dismantled and Treebeard walking around destroying shit, like they're just sitting there eating, drinking, and smoking, sort of reveling in those those comforts and just enjoy and just very hobbit like you know very self indulgent enjoying life and joking around and then it goes to them having to face reality and you see pippin he's i think of the hobbits like kids almost they're innocent you know they're not they're certainly not warriors in any way they're just you know really these innocent beings and he's on the edge of war and they're seeing you know, the flames in Mordor and that bolt come down from the sky. And that whole exchange with that whole loss of innocence with Pippin of like, it's one thing for a warrior like Gandalf to be on the edge of battle, but somebody who's not a soldier, seeing them, you know, seeing what it's like to experience those emotions on the edge of a fight, a life and death fight is really striking, you know? And again, that's what makes the Lord of the Rings so cool. Not just the movies, the stories in general, the books, it's like, yes, you have the awesome characters and this grandiose adventure and these set piece battles, but it's grounded, even though it's fantastic with dwarves and elves and dragons and wizards and all that kind of stuff. It's it's grounded in what it would really feel like. You know, and I really feel like that exchange between this little hobbit and this crazy wizard in this fantastic otherworldly place is so realistic. It really feels like you're on the edge of the battle with them you know, of what they're experiencing. I totally agree. I think it's very well put. I, I, when the green bolt comes out of the sky, they're standing on the balcony and Gandalf like puts his arm around him, which I think is like really cool because you very know it's emotional. scary, you know, and you see it. And I love the conversation that they have later on, I think, which is what, when you're referencing when they're talking about the Shire and you remember the Shire and he's talking about, he's basically telling him what it is to die. Yeah. And it's really powerful. And I remember being really entranced by it where I was like, you could see it. It's just a beautiful performance by the two actors and him kind of accepting that he's going, that they're going to die. And, and Gandalf has 
is like you've said an almost demigod-like character that that lives and dies but this mortal halfling from far away is gonna meet his maker and i often wonder if gandalf's lying to him you know yeah because you do he, wonder gandalf about doesn't, that, right? gandalf doesn't really know what it is to die per se so not not the way that a, a mortal would die right but that's I, true. I i i do love the growing with both, both mary and pippin like the just the growing bravery i think i love that this movie shines a bright light on them and makes them into characters like real characters as individuals they're separated you would expect them to be together but they're separated and then they find their own way back to each other which is really endearing and i find i find their whole arc endearing and you root for them when they come in at the end when frodo's in bed and they jump on the bed with him it's it's so endearing it's it's cute and you want to know more almost about about their friendship and all of that. Yeah, and true. I, I guess this brings me into a question that Brian Keith wrote into us. He says, um, hello, gentlemen. I'm about to ask you guys the real question. Did you guys cry while watching this movie? Why is it yes? And what part did you cry at? For me, it's always when Aragorn tells the hobbits that they bow to no one. It sends chills all around every time. It makes me nearly ball my eyes out. To me, it's such a defining moment in the movies. And for the hobbits as characters, it's a beautiful scene. Thanks for the amazing podcast and the many cherished laughs you guys gave me. Thank you for writing in, Brian. I Thanks, it's Brian. funny because when I was talking about quotes, the, the um, you bow to no one is is probably my favorite quote. And that scene is is quite amazing as well. There are I, I would say the last hour is pretty tear jerking in a lot it of is. different ways. But what, what do you feel like are the really, truly emotional parts? I'll tell you what moment gets me. <clears throat> and it's even more powerful in the book. It always stood out to me. I cried. It's one of the one of the only times I remember crying in a book, although I'm sure there were other times is when at the you know towards the end in the story same as the film where Pippin is frantically searching for Mary on the battlefield and he finds him and he's alive and he sort of rolls Mary over in the book he rolls Mary over and Mary asks he's like on his last legs and he asks he looks at Pippin and he says are we dead <laughs> and i remember him saying that and i was like that's it i just lost it from there and then you know Pippin's reassuring him and everything he's like don't leave me whatever in the in the film, it's still very touching. He says, you know, he says, are we, you know, he says, are we, uh, are you going to leave me or whatever? And Pippin's like, I'm not going to leave you. And he sits there and he covers them with the blanket and everything like that, which is very emotional. But in the book, I don't remember, I don't remember crying in the film, but that part in the book, the description, sort of Pippin just being on his last legs of like, just completely beside himself with worry for his friend. He can't find him on the battlefield. Just, I think he's assuming that he's going to find his body you know, for some closure and he finds him alive and everything's very emotional in the book. And of course, again, like the Pippin and the Gandalf scene, oh dude, you know what else? What I don't remember this being that emotional, but the scene where Pippin, Denethor asks Pippin to sing him the song. Right. And then Denethor is kind of feasting like a pig at a trough, like while Faramir is basically throwing, while the son's basically throwing his life away and Pippin is singing that sort of says that lament, that song or whatever. Dude, so good. if you don't fall in love with Pippin at that moment for the complete, you know, the complete character arc that he had in that 20 minutes of like enjoying like his his pork and his pipe weed. And then all of a sudden just like saying to this mad king and he's like so sad for Faramir and everything. Dude, it's insane. It's if you if you don't love Pippin in this movie, I just I just think you got to we got to get you on the EKG. Got to see what that heart rate is. <laughs> what, what do you think about this idea that I have speaking of, you know, the death of the sun and, and, um, and Faramir and Boromir, obviously in the whole arc with the boys over the three movies about this obsession 
and I noted it in my notes here, that they're more obsessed, this society seems to be more obsessed with their ancestors than their progeny, like the, what's going to, what already happened and what will happen to come. Do you think that there's some message in that? I, I, I'm kind of fascinated by that, about this idea that like they had, again, it, it's kind of visual. They go into the tombs and the tombs are in perfect shape, even though the society is crumbling. And they talk about the past over and over again, but never even plan or worry about the future. Do you think there's anything to that? I mean, what what does that talk to you? How does that talk to you as a, a literary device? That's a great. That's a great point. I didn't. I didn't really think about that. I mean, I think about lineage in this world, and that's probably typical of a lot of fantasy, where it's very important if you're a king, or if you're a steward, or if you're a prince, you want to hand down not only the familial heir or entitlements, but also you know, those roles of like inheriting a stewardship, inheriting a place, inheriting a castle, inheriting an empire, whatever type of thing, which seems to be a big thing. And it seems to be, again, we don't get enough of the dwarves, but with the elves and the men, certainly legacy is a really important thing. And we see that across, you know, across the boards between the elves and the men, where it's like, even with Elrond, with Elrond and, and the elves of Rivendell and Celeborn and Galadriel and everything and that. It's like the elves sort of relinquishing their role in the world, not just the places they inhabit, but their role in the world. And then also with the men, it's like that's the that's the weird thing with Denethor. It's like he lost the son who he favored, but even though he browbeat his less favored son or the one that he sort of deemed too gentle or the, you know, the, the, the pupil of a wizard or whatever type of thing that he even, it was still important to him. It was unspoken thing that it was still important to him that he would exist in order to take on the, you know, the, the whole lineage of the whole Minas Tirith thing and being a steward of, of Gondor and all that. So, you know, that, that's an interesting thing. I think that the Hobbit speaks to that too with the men at Rivertown at the end with the battle with Smog and it's Smaug. Smaug. And everything. But that's a great point. Yeah, that's no. another, that's another probably big theme. And and then you think of thing, you know what the other thing is you think of characters too that aren't beholden to a lineage or entitlements or family names or specific places. Like like the wizards, like Gandalf. It's like and it makes you realize the importance and sort of the the wonder of a role like that. It's like just doing something to be a hero. There's nothing in it for, there's nothing in it for a character like Gandalf. He's simply there to help the cause of good, right? To help the cause of men with no promises of anything, which is another, you know, a nice contrast compared to the people that inhabit this world that are, that are not magical, I guess. Yeah, it's well put. And, you know, in in thinking about the times that made me sad, I, I would have to say that the and I, one scene I really want to talk to you about is the scene with the boat when they're leaving um, Middle Earth. And uh, I this scene, I think, is terribly sad and definitely, you know, got some tears out of me when I was watching it. Watching the four of them kind of have to say goodbye to, you know, to at least one of, you know, to their to their main dude. Yeah. What is the interpretation of this scene? I'm I'm a little confused. Are they dying? I don't really understand what what this is. I guess, and I don't really remember it from the book either. Yeah, you know what? It's a, the the whole pilgrimage of the elves leaving this world to go to the White Shores, 
right? That's the whole thing. They're leaving, crossing the ocean to like, the way I always interpret it, and I could be wrong, and I'm sure we have people that that know the content better than us or know the whole backstory with it. Certainly, but the yeah. way I always look at it is the elves sort of abandoning this, in this land for another place. And the whole thing about a, a mere hobbit going with them, you know, with the company of like these enchanted immortal people and a wizard. And like now this regular, this regular person is able to go with them too. Like, to put him, to put him, Frodo in such a prominent place. I love that ending, and I love the sadness of it. It's very realistic, you know that that the not only the is the fellowship breaking up, but also the four hobbits are now broken up, and you know especially that means a lot to Sam, especially even though he's getting married, even though he's going to go back to the Shire and have children and have a life, and Mary and Pippin are going to be there and stuff. The fact that Frodo's going, that's very sad. And you know what's also funny? I don't remember. Does Sam go with him in the book? I don't, you know, I have to read The Return of the King again. I really want to read it again because I don't remember it that well. But, you know, I think the Grey Havens or, you know, the the elves, you see it in the Two Towers. That's the whole thing with our, you know, the elves are having their pilgrimage out and they're going to the boats. And Arwen, is Arwen going to be a part of that or is she going to stay and kind of forsake her right. immortality and just, you know, opt in for a mortal life, a tragic life? Or, Which, she know, Which she does. Which she does. Which he does. She marries uh, uh, Aragorn, but yeah, I think you know it's it's funny, man. I never saw it as like that is interesting. Like, is it some suicide pact or something? I I should probably know that, but I don't. It just seems so. The way it was presented was, and I know that the 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 elves are supposed to be presented as very ethereal, natural, easy. There's actually a great scene when they're walking, like a procession is walking through the woods much earlier in the film, and there's like no noise being made, and I was just like, this is so cool. This is That's exactly super cool, but. It seemed so bright, so dramatic, so like, I don't know what that was supposed to be. Why did, how did, let not even say why, how did Frodo know that he was going to go? Because he did. He knew yeah. the entire time. What was the clue? Did, did Gandalf tell him or something? And I, I do love the whole thing of the book kind of <laughs> bookending the, the, the entire series where Bilbo is working on the book in the beginning under a certain title, and then it's finished at the end under the Lord of the Rings moniker by his nephew. So it's it's How a, cool it's is a that? yeah, it's very neat. But I guess I interpreted that I and this is what I need to know more about. I know that this is the third age, and there's the fourth age, and the second age. And I don't know anything about those things, but I, I guess I interpreted that as more than just them like an exodus, but that they were that something supernatural was happening. I guess I'm wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably am wrong on that because it's not, it would otherwise be like some sort of Jonestown, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Pact. That's what it, you know what that, and it is almost fascinating to think there's a, there's a crazy tragedy in that where it's like the elves just consider middle earth no longer worth being there for. You know, like, and also I always, I always thought Frodo going with them was him sort of like Bilbo leaving the Shire and holding up in Rivendell in his old, old age of like being needing because of what he went through with the ring and for being under the power of the ring for so long and how it changed him and how it sort of decayed him a little bit and broke him down that he needed to go to a place that a place of healing. You know, yeah, so the convalesce Bilbo, or whatever. 
and, right, ended up going to Rivendell, and then Frodo would end up going. So, I, Kyle, I just looked this up real quick, and I don't know the validity yep. of this, but it says all of the ring bearers left Middle Earth Gandalf, Galadriel, Elrond, Bilbo, and Frodo. Now, think of the other rings, too, right? You got to think of the other rings, like Gandalf claims to be the servant of the sacred fire and all that kind of stuff. There's other rings besides the one ring. And even Sam, after his children were grown and Rosie passed away, I don't remember this. The characters you mention are accompanying the elves. Galadriel, etc., back to Valinor, the Undying Lands in capitals, across the sea to the west. Yeah, Undying Lands. The Undying Lands. So there is something, there has to be some religiosity to this, right? Yeah, it says the elves go to the Undying Lands because that marks an ending point to their life. There you go. I mean, so that's very, that's very mysterious. Yeah, this is what, and this is what I'm saying. It's the Walking Dead effect, where it's like I want to know more about everything else. Right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. You I don't know, care about you, I never Rick. Really thought that much about it. You're right. I don't know. I don't care about you, Rick, and your dumb fucking. What do they do outfit. there? Denethor just lights them all on fire. That's yeah. That's it. He's just wait. <laughs> but this might actually go into this day. Um, Carlos Marulanda, Marulanda wrote in. Us. I'm sorry, hey, Carlos. Name. He says, "Hey guys, this is my first time writing in, so I had to ask." This, since I think it would be thought-provoking. Okay. Many have concluded that Tolkien intended at the end of the books to deliver a sort of anti-industrial message in the name of preserving nature. It seemed rather heavy-handed with how the Shire was basically torn asunder by Saruman's conquest when they finally got back home. Do you think this message comes through at all in the final film or the trilogy in general? Do either of you think that this could have been done better in terms of getting the author's message across in this adaptation? I should mention that from what I gather online, Tolkien was a staunch anti-industrialist because of what he saw and how the unnatural destruction, especially the nature, seemed to him. Maybe one of you had heard about this and will have some insight. I will say that there is a strong, I mean, shit, man, it, it, it goes all the way into Victorian novels long before this. You think about Oliver Twist and shit. Yeah. Br- British writers were, I mean, not all of them, but were very anti-industrialist. And I think a part of the, the two reasons of that with the first and second industrial revolutions were, was that I think Britain was at the center of the science and the tech and was happening there quickly. It was happening very quickly. It's a small piece of land compared to a lot of other places. It got really dirty and sooty. Obviously, London was like a hellhole for a really long time for many hundreds of years. Yeah. So I think that it would make sense that a British author would have that built into him, especially post-war. We have to look at the World War II era. Obviously, that's where all the, I guess, non-existent allegory comes from for the, for the, the movies. But also they saw, or the books rather, but they also saw in Europe firsthand, just the destruction of nature. Remember, World War I, 1914 and 1918, World War II, 1938, 1939 to 1945, destroyed Europe. And they saw what happened. And maybe what you're saying about the elves abandoning this land is almost in itself a sign to say, like, we're abandoning that, like, this... This place is inherently in some way unclean. This place is beyond reproach. We've saved it, but we don't really want to be a part of it anymore. I don't know if that's a valid interpretation, but what do you think about um, the idea of this being kind of a an environmental an environmentalist book or an anti-industrialist book? I could see that. And I think it is, you know, we talk about the allegories with, with war and civilization and uh, World War II specifically with the Nazis and the Allies and everything that he was a little more, you know, a little more coy about. But I know he was really, naturalist is the right word, right? He was really into nature. 
he really famously kind of disavowed like the television and technology in general. He loved to live in the country. He loved like the, he was very Hobbit-like, you know, he loved smoking his pipe and reading books and all that kind of thing. I'm sure he, you know, they, they, they had electricity and things like that. But yeah, right. I know he was very outspoken about that. And he was outspoken about the environment too and environmental causes way before that was in vogue, by the way. You know, that wasn't a big, that wasn't necessarily a big thing. I love your point about England being technological and industrial and being so tiny. Because you take that for granted. You think of a place like the United States, you could relegate industry to a place like Detroit or a quarter of a major metropolitan area or something. But in London, you're, you're dealing with much less physical, and in England, rather, you're dealing with much less physical space. So, you know, you really, that's something that's really, so yeah, the ash and the dust and the soot and the, the pollution and everything as a, as a runoff of, of an industry is a, is a great point. And I, I'm sure that was why it was such a big issue or a big part of it was because it was so noticeable. You know, it was such a big part of their lives once it once that once that took off. But I know Tolkien was very. I listened to a great radio interview with him. It was about an hour long earlier today, and it said a lot. He he said a lot about the way he thinks about things. It was really fascinating. His stances on things. He didn't talk about this specifically, but the way he named characters and the way he vetted names of characters and that that they had to feel right and. You know, sort of envisioning characters like Faramir, where they just kind of wrote them, wrote themselves as they went along, and the fact that he would eventually wed with Eowyn wasn't really kind of in the built-in trajectory, but it eventually ended up happening in the writing. And the way he thought, like, there was no way he could write a story like this without drawing a very complicated map first. Like, he was very much like, this would have not been, this would have wouldn't have worked if I didn't draw this crazy intricate map of this world first like i really needed that as so it was really fascinating very, very telling yeah you know and he, it doesn't very seem visual. like he, he was afraid to talk about his craft at all yeah I, i'm curious to know more about him like i don't i don't know much about him i was reading a little bit about him being surprised by the success of the books i think that he made an enormous amount of money from them sure and obviously as we've talked about ad nauseum is just revitalized where it really you know was the Speaking of progenitors, the, the the creator of what we would know as fantasy, I think, today. So it's natural, I think, for us to want to look for deeper meanings in what he's saying. And I think that I'm so into that. We talked a lot about it when we discussed Mad Men, which I think is a very symbolic show. Yeah. And definitely. certainly in my own games, there's a lot of symbolism and I write like that and I, I dig writing like that. So I don't know if I'm seeking it out where it might not be, but. I feel like at the very least you can see a naturalist. That's a great word for it. A naturalist's message yeah. in all things here. So even if you don't believe in the World War II allegory and and you might not and, and it doesn't seem like it was intended or whatever, even though it, it's quite fun to put that in there. It reminds me a lot of the examination of The Shining, the film, not the book, in that people see much in that movie and i think some of it is there and i think most of it isn't and it's fun to figure out what is what and there's like entire documentaries dedicated to that oh my so maybe God, we so crazy it's awesome but maybe it's we so can cool. maybe we can look at it through that lens too where maybe like you said he was maybe being a little coy also maybe it's a little bit of an honest thing because when you when you when people go back and interpret like things i've written where they're like oh i interpreted it this way i'm like oh that's actually more clever than what i even <laughs> thought about so you know you got to give him some credit for um for not 
wanting to take credit for other people's ideas. Because if someone was like, oh, this is a World War II, uh, you know, allegory because of this, this, and this, and I'd be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Well, Kyle, let me ask yeah. you real quick. When oh, you please. when somebody questions your writing, you know, say, I see this in it, and is this correct? Do you more find yourself surprised by it? Or do you go in and introspectively say, maybe I didn't intend it, you know, outwardly, but maybe it kind of crept its, you know, its way in from my psyche type thing. Do you ever find that happens where maybe it is possible that your subconscious threw that in? It could be. I think what my bigger thing associated with that about getting feedback about fiction for the first time that I'm putting out into the world is that I'm realizing that because I've done it so many times, my, um, my great example is that like my interpretation of the end of the last of us is categorically wrong in association with what Neil Druckmann had intended. I know that for a fact because he told me, but it's still my right to have agency over the creation as the consumer. Yeah. And what I'm realizing about putting stuff out there is that my interpretation, like I could scream from the hilltops with my interpretation or like what my intent was, right? Twin Breaker is an anti-war game. That's okay. what the idea is. It's supposed to be an anti-war game. And any other interpretation of that is wrong, but that's your right to make that interpretation. And maybe it's not wrong. And, sure. And that's almost what's so fun about putting things into the wild. And I'm sure you feel that way about your own art too, is the things that people find or draw out of it that you had never even intended. And that's, I think the beauty of the depth of Tolkien is that these books give you so much depth. It's not wordiness for wordiness sake. I, I, I think it's different than George Martin. I think it's even different than authors I really like, like Ayn Rand in the sense that it's just, it doesn't seem to be verbose for verbosity's sake, but rather uses its word count very cleverly in such a way that it establishes a baseline story that can then be interpreted in all of these very meaningful and I think valid ways, whether sure. or not he, he died in 1973. He's long gone. He, he, wow. For almost 50 years, it's not like he's going to ever come back and say, like, well, I didn't mean it. You know, and also <laughs> it's fun to interpret, not that I have done it with this, but it's fun to interpret things through the lens of things that have happened afterwards too, that he couldn't have possibly known. Right. And, and how, you know, almost like, uh, Nostradamus is quatrains, right? Where it's like, it's about Hitler's death and shit. Well, you can like kind of take this great fantasy and this great writing and really fix, fit it and mold it in such a way that it speaks to whatever you wanted to. And I think that that's, it's biblical. It's like, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's. It, that's what's great. Li that's great literature invokes that stuff where you almost feel like, yeah, of course, that's what it means. Of sure. course, because you're so positive because that's the way it made you feel. And I think that this is unique in that sense. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And, and you're right. Any work of art, fiction, visual art, even music, like it's not you create it, you put it out in the world and it becomes, you know, it becomes the viewer, the viewers, it becomes partially that person's, you know, the recipient's own thing. It's not yours anymore. It's not the artist anymore. It's it's shared now. So interpretation is kind of part of the fun. You know? It is. And and also relinquishing that control in yes. some way. I know okay. some people, I think I think actually not Tolkien, uh, Martin is one of those people where he's like totally anti, and we've discussed this in the past in other um, ways, but anti fanfic. And I am too. Like, I think that fan fiction is pretty lame, actually. It's like, why don't you just, if you have this, these writing chops, go make your own character. Do something. Yeah. 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 I always course. found it very weird, especially now. But from an interpretive point of view and through the lens in which you read or watch something or listen to it, whatever, of course, these things are going to be open to interpretation. That's, that's why people love literature. And by the way, and I said earlier, it's biblical. I mean, people still interpret the Bible in all sorts of different ways. For, somehow you get the prosperity gospel out of something that was written. Not that that's right or wrong, but you get something like the prosperity gospel out of something written 1900, you know, 1950 years ago or something. So, right. You know, so it's just very interesting from that respect. But Dave, 
I wanted to ask you this as we begin to wrap things up. We mentioned the many endings. The movie seems like it's ending oh, from the yes. very beginning. Dylan Lockyer <laughs> wrote in and said, hey, Colin and Dagan, we all know the joke about Return of the King having a million endings. Which of them sticks with you the most? My personal favorite is the fellowship reuniting when Frodo wakes up to really tie us back to the first movie. I even love Gandalf's crazy old man laugh. Love you both. And thank you for being such a positive force in my life. Thank you, Dylan, for writing. I appreciate thank you. Thank you. So, Dick, out of all these endings, I think the movie is in perpetual ending mode. It definitely and is. It actually, in the extended version, I'm like, oh, my God, especially because there are these wipes. I don't know if they're from the original cuts or whatever, but there are these certain wipes and segues where it's like this was the end. And then this was the end. And then because it just it lingers too long where you're expecting the credits to pop up or like directed by. So I I will say that my favorite ending, I do like when they all reunite in the room. Sam comes in last. He's got that really great wistful look on his face. But I also love the crowning of Aragorn. I'm confused by why Gimli is there. And I actually have a question as to why. Where are the dwarves? Yeah, where are know? the dwarves? I Like, where are they? I mean, we go to Minas Tirith. <laughs> or not Minas Tirith. No, that's right. That's the underground. No. What's the underground? The underground city they Mo- go to? Moria. Moria. In the Fellowship? Yeah. The Mines of Moria. That's right. Yeah. And we and we know that they 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 were killed or vanquished at some point there yeah that, but that that's... just drew that just drew question into me where it's like where and i was actually like so i'm so lost with fellowship or with um return of the king at this point both the film and the book like what actually happens where i'm like did the dwarves show up like as i was watching it i'm like do they come into this battle and stuff and obviously as it went on i'm like no that doesn't happen and then it just it's so i like that ending because it has the cool quote with my friends you bow to no one which is a great quote sure also it has it's the fulfillment of the return of the king and, you know, the, the, the proper noun return of the king. And it, <laughs> it, it so it ties up that loose end and it shows us that there's this incredible respect for these four halflings that found themselves in this extraordinary journey and did the right thing. And so I, I like and that I think is a really sad and somber moment in its own way. What of the uh, endings, the 17,000 endings of the movie that you enjoy the most? <laughs> it really does end over and over again. It's so funny when the sentiment is like nearly unanimous with viewers, you know, by the hundreds of thousands, like everybody's like, yeah, it just keeps ending. It's so funny. It seems like they just couldn't bear to stick with one ending that ended a million different ways. And I don't remember if the book felt like that too. I think a big part of that though, is that you have this epic battle in the first, easily in the first quarter of the movie. So you have this epic thing and it just feels like it should already be over. I don't think that helps. You know, where that, you know, they, there's a lot that goes on after that battle, after that initial battle. But for me, I love the ending. I think really one of the most satisfying things of the ending is the reunion in Rivendell, specifically of the four hobbits. I love seeing Bilbo too. I love Ian Holm reprising his role as as Bilbo. I, I, I think he's a great actor. Does it make you but, wonder what order they filmed all this in, by the way? I was thinking. Yeah, that's that. the thing too. Like they could have right. a lot of fun in the editing room with this because there's really no. Nothing really has any bearing sequentially, so you could just well, kind of mix and match. Yeah, well, I was know? thinking when they were going back into the Shire at the end, like the Four Hobbits, yeah. I was like, I bet you they filmed that at the same time they built, they filmed Fellowship. And I was thinking of the same thing with Bilbo, where I'm like, I bet you they filmed all this. Yeah, had, you know what? They, they had him the on foresight. set so they could send him away. You know, that's God, that's, that's just product. I was just, I don't know that. I don't know any of that. I was just thinking about that constantly as I was watching the movie. Anyway, yeah, it does. See, it does give you those feelings. That would be very smart if they did that. But yeah, I love, I love the four hobbits specifically. You know that that reunion because that's such a great payoff. They they've been away from each other since 
the beginning of the, you know, since the end of the first film, right? They went through the mines of Moria. And then after that, with the whole thing with Barmir and the battle, and then Sam and, you know, Frodo trying to leave Sam and then Sam almost drowning. And then, so the hobbits have been split over the course of like these films. So it was nice to see them. Thank God they all lived to get back together. <laughs> that would be so tragic if you I know it, die. It, it, yeah, it would, it would be awful. I, I love that. You know, I love the whole thing being about, in my interpretation, not the whole thing being about, but part of it is like the valor and bravery of these very unusual passive creatures that didn't expect to find themselves in this situation, but conducted themselves with the uh, ended up conducting themselves with the utmost bravery when the world needed them most. And I think that that scene with Aragorn bowing represents their understanding that no matter all of the ulterior things that happen in which facilitated them not getting captured at every turn and that the fellowship themselves kind of propelled them and gave them inertia to go towards Mordor, that these unusual creatures were trusted with this incredible, especially Sam and, and Frodo, trusted with this incredible task, which they fulfilled. They really did it. And it's uh, and that leads into my other favorite ending, which is certainly just being at Mount Doom and feeling like, you know, I know what happens. Like we, we know that he gets his finger bit off and he fights with Gollum. And we kind of have the full circle thing where, you know, Sam was right about Gollum the entire time and the bread and all the things that happened to them with the crumbs and everything earlier on. But I remember I was, even as I was watching it, even as I know what happens, I'm like, just drop the fuck. You know, like it's, it's one of those, it's one of those endings where you, like, you're just like, drop the ring, drop it. it. And you want it to go like a different way. You know, it's like, just drop the ring. (laughs) And you can feel it in Sam saying like, what are you doing? Like, right, right, right. We have been crawling on hands and knees to get here for fucking 13 months drop the ring in the lava (laughs) yep so i feel like that end that end really like was palpable in a way absolutely oh my god such tension and it makes me you you know you saying that makes me realize was sam really the one should he been the the agent you know should he have been the vessel for delivering the ring like was he made of even sterner stuff than frodo now frodo did it out of love for bilbo but sam would have been I think Sam might have been a better vehicle for the ring. I think he was I think he was even less corruptible than Frodo. Now, had Sam been the ring bearer from the beginning, he might have been just as eaten away by it as Frodo, but I'm not sure about that. Right. Sam's Sam's got something, man. He's just got that he's got And he that, had the ring for a while. And, he, and that's true, he carried it. And so, Frodo. Right. Like and a sack ca- of and potatoes. He, I can't carry the ring, but he's he can carry Frodo. So <laughs> He's I don't know. He's just got those he's got those Derek Jeter like qualities. You can't even like really describe them. They're just you know, he's just good. Uh, a couple more things that I just wanted to bring up before we go. I wanted to kick it over to you just to see, see if we didn't touch on anything you wanted to talk about. Sure. Just to, as I'm going through my notes things that didn't come up. The quote all has turned to vain ambition is an amazing quote. Great quote. Love that quote. It can be used every day in a lot of different There's also a quote. I don't know who wrote said it. I think it's one of the hobbits. There's no more stars. Is it time? I think Pippin says that to to Gandalf. I'm trying to think. When they're on the balcony and he says, there's no more stars. Is it time? Indicating that it's about to end. Everything's about to end. That's so cool. Which I love as well. Foreboding. I love that the blade, the, um, they, 
reforged the broken blade. And I think it it represented kind of the passing of the torch from the elf to the human. This this weapon being necessary to court kingly um, respect. Obviously, without the without the welded blade, we would have never gotten to the ghost characters that needed to be right. redeemed and all of that. They would have never recognized Aragorn as king and all of that. So there's you know the, the quote of putting aside the ranger. I think is a really is a really cool thing. And I did also dig the lighting of the various torches, like the signal lights. Although oh my it's, God, love it's that. although it's pretty shoddy tech like CG work if you look at it because they linger on it for so long some of the shots where the camera is has to turn I guess they're in a helicopter it's probably not it's too early for drones but they're probably in a helicopter in the turning and so the flame has to turn with the camera and it just looks totally off so I gotta watch that yeah you can that's see a that. good eye otherwise I think I I've commented on pretty much everything I've wanted to say is there anything that we didn't touch on Dig that you wanted to talk about. Well, I love you talk about Aragorn needing that token, needing that reforged sword in order to command the undead armies. Very, very video game esque. First, you yeah, go the whole the thing is very sword. video game esque. It's all right. It's such a video game. Yeah. You know, it's so cool. Had such, I wonder, this had such I wonder where it came from. You know, like I wonder where video games came from. It's like exactly. I mean, this it, had such an enormous impact. <laughs> there would be no current video. Video games would have looked very different without Tolkien. You know. I agree. Such, I totally agree. Such an enormous. It, it's just like Star Wars and science fiction, or even Star Trek and science fiction. Like without those things, you know that that those genres would look so different. You know, which yeah. is which is just amazing. I mean, there's we we did a pretty good job of covering everything. We did. Let's see. Yeah, I'm looking at all the characters. We got to talk about. We got to talk about everybody there. Yeah, I'm satisfied on my end. You know. Yeah, I mean that was it, it was fun. You really. I enjoyed watching the entire trilogy again, and, and you're Me right. Too. We did them in pretty close proximity. We probably did the entire trilogy within the last three months, I would say. Yeah, not even, I would say. Right, not even. But Return of the King was really, really extra enjoyable for me. And I think that says a lot because the length is, is could be pretty off-putting. You know, for a, a tired, busy adult, we're, we're all tired, we're all busy with our careers and families and jobs and everything. I have to say, when I was when I when you told me that, I was like, "Oh man!" You I know? know it's like because oh, I think no. I was coming off of the two towers where I was like, "Because eh, the fellowship had me really high," and then yeah. the two towers was a little bit of a lull for me, and then so, but return is better than both of them. So I, I think agree. that four and a half hours was was pretty brisk. All things pretty considered. easy breezy. Yeah. I mean, that's saying a lot. And you know, not just sitting there to watch it, but <clears throat> you know, Kyle, when you do, and a lot of you guys know out there too that do podcasts. Like it's also like remembering that amount of content to talk about like could be an off-putting notion it's like oh man i gotta remember all this and like by the time i get three hours in i'm gonna forget the first hour but this movie just makes it really easy you know and i know we know we know this stuff a little bit already but it was uh it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it this week it was great yeah me too and so everyone can go back and listen to those or our three episodes now in sequence if they'd like and i agree it, it's I don't like doing podcasts where it's like, you know, this, ha I've said this many times, but this happened, then this happened, then this right, happened. Right. I don't want to examine anything like that. Recap. I think it's boring. Rather that I want to just go to what is most gravitational in the product at hand. It doesn't have to be a sequential retelling of the story or the, we don't have to discuss every actor's performance. And it's, you know, obviously we didn't bring up the Oscars really at all. This movie is like one of the most winningest movies in, in Oscar history, but I don't really, I don't care about any of that one. If you're just watching, that's cool, but yeah. it's, I like I'm getting more comfortable with knockback the longer we go on where I'm like, this is just us reflecting on. And what I keep saying is, is our podcasts are companion pieces to the fiction sure, or whatever that 
is out there that we're doing as opposed to like going and saying like, where is the, you know, why didn't you talk about Indiana Jones's entire plot first? It's like, well, I'm, right. not, gonna, I'm not going to do that. So you don't have to do that. It's kind of the, you got to kind of take the components that are the most important to us. You know, that's exactly Because right. you could talk about it ad nauseum for hours and upon hours and take every single thing, every single component, but it's more fun to talk about the stuff that's the most, you know, that's the closest to our hearts or the stuff that we want to get out there because that's the most genuine conversation, my friend. I agree, Dave. You know what I well, mean? Well, I kick it over to you for a dad joke as we okay, I got a good on one. out of here. I got to say, big thank you to our boy, Troy Miller on, I forgot if we talked on Instagram or Twitter, but I think it's Twitter. He sent me this dad joke. Tell you, man, this dad joke racket, it is turning into a racket. You know, yeah, they're just good. making it easy for me. It's a racket know? where no money is being made, but it's a no racket. No money at all. Yeah. That ain't working. That's the way to do it. Money <laughs> for nothing <laughs> and your chicks for free. free. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't working. That's the way to do it. I like like the real earnest part. You get the guitar and the MTV. So good. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. Yeah. Dude, Dire Straits rules. So All right, good. go on with the dad joke. All right, Kyle. Every morning, I walk outside and I get hit by the same bike. Every morning, it's a vicious cycle. It's <laughs> pretty good. Not bad. Yeah, that's not bad at all. I think that came through last night. I'm like, I'm using it. <laughs> and then I always threaten not to give credit, but I always do. That's the way you do it. Yeah, I, I love, I, now I have dire straits in my head, you know, because I love when he's like, that ain't working. And then they have the little harmony. I think it's in the second verse where he's like, that's the way you do it. The other guy like, <laughs> and then he just like disappears. <laughs> An early, early CG video. I think the entire video is CG. I don't think there's even footage of the band or anything. It's like, I think they watch the band on the TV. Okay. In, you okay, know what I mean? Like right. they're, wa- they're in like right. the chairs and they're watching the band play. God, early compositing. Talk I about mean, how much did that, how much did that the, cost, I wonder, God, for them to do? I'd like to know who did it. That was I'm even sure you can find Pixar. that. That's an iconic music video. I'm sure there's a lot of information on that. I wonder who did that. Pixar was doing commercials at that time. I, I feel like we would know guys. if that was Pixar. Yeah. You know? They did like the early Listerine commercial that, that oh, oh, oh. <laughs> all right Dave. well i appreciate your time thank you so much good appreciate all of you, you out there fun. yeah good to see you as well thank you all out there for your love kindness and support of our show could not do it without you remember support us on patreon patreon.com slash last stand media i almost like collins last dance not that anymore also you can go on itunes youtube etc support us there follow us on twitter instagram etc whatever you can do we appreciate it we'll see you next time for more knockback until then goodbye goodbye Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity.
Andrew Morgan, Gregory Slavinsky, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenko, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, George Gazi, Christian Rodriguez, Jod Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez Espinoza, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Jordan Andow, Maverick Mazel, Chris Kelly, Andrew Meister, Evaristo One, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Robert Toe, Josh Hallen Rui, Corbin Dallas, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Evan Barr, Tal- Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, Jimmy Dean Man, William Holbert, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Call Like Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Caleb Sittler, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Jeff Mercado, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Gavin Newland, Lockmort, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Rinsler526, Ben B, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, Chris Buston, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter86, Steve Hodge, Hofeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travis Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algarit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Donnie Nolan, Josh Yeager, Turbo Makes Games, Matthew Cooper, Dan Parsons, Martin Beck, Gavin, Brian Watkins, Joe Andracek, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, David Everett, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, William, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Zach Binkley, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Max Lazos, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Kyle Thomas, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Matt Hazelbaker, Todd Paxton, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.